up, podcast? Hey, Drew back with another episode of Moto Adventure Unscripted. Uh, I want to take a second and thank folks. Uh, got a couple emails over the past couple shows, so I really appreciate the support from the crowd. Um, and I always want to invite more people to go ahead and uh, shoot me emails about comments and uh, that kind of thing. You can reach me at uh, motoadvr at gmail.com. Today on the show, we're talking with none other than Joe Zito from uh, RevZilla's Common Tread and also on the RevZilla High Side Low Side podcast. Joe Zito uh, has a wealth of experience. Uh, we cover a whole myriad of topics uh, over the next uh, hour and a half, two hours or so. Uh, Joe used to own his own shop uh, before he worked at RevZilla. Uh, in his time at RevZilla, he went through customer service, was a video production coordinator, and obviously now he's a host of the High Side Low Side show, or, or a, a media host, excuse me, uh, that's on the show there. And then on top of that, he obviously does a little publication here and there for Common Tread. So uh, strap in and uh, crack open a beer, your favorite beverage, whatever it may be, and uh, and listen to him just tell us about all the crazy things he's done in this life, from uh, racing vintage bikes to working on choppers, and uh, basically how he likes uh, two-stroke enduro bikes and whatnot as well. So... Here it is. All right. From RevZilla's high side, low side, we've got Joe Zito on the line. How's it going, man? Good, man. Here I am. We're doing it. It's, um, God, I don't, I've lost count. I had took a couple of weeks off from recording some podcasts, but I mean, we're in like, what, upwards of 20 weeks of COVID world now or something like that. I don't even know. I stopped Dude. paying attention. <laughs> uh, good, for, good for you. I was going to ask you what, uh, cause you're in, are you in Philly or are you in Jersey? I live in New Jersey, but I work in Revzilla in Philly. So, but it's honestly, it's only like about 10, 15 minute commute. I, I literally live right on the other side of the bridge. Being that close to New York, I imagine that life has been uh, dramatically different. Although you'd be the first person I've talked to that's that far East. Yeah. Uh, honestly, you know, since I live in South Jersey, um, we haven't really had much direct impact from, from what was going on in New York City, but I do have a lot of friends that live up there who have friends and relatives that live in the city, and, and a lot of them got sick, man. Wow. Um, so, you know, I, I think that this, the city up there and the public transportation and, and just how much more crowded it is up there, you know, com comparatively, Philly is like the suburbs. Really? You know, it's just so, so much more chill. Um, you know, my wife works in Center City where she would normally have to commute on a, on a train. But thankfully, you know, she's been able to work from home all this time and, and, and is pretty happy doing so because generally, you know, for her to get to work, it takes her like an hour. Even though it's only like eight miles away, it's the, it's the fact that she has to go into the heart of the city. So there's uh, dealing with driving to the train, parking, riding the train, then walking to the office. Whereas, thankfully, since Revzilla is in the Navy Yard, uh, we have a nice parking lot right there. So I just jam right over the bridge and I could park right out front, you know, so it's, it's a lot easier for me. Um, but thankfully, both of us have had the opportunity to work from home, uh, you know, for a majority of, of all this kind of stuff. Now, we're just starting to get back into shooting in the studio. So uh, since, you know, we're video people, we're in the video department. Um, I don't know how many people have watched our videos out there before, but we have a very legitimate studio. It's, it's kind of like uh, we basically have like three different movie sets, you know, with a full grid of lighting. And, and uh, you know, we have uh, our, one, <laughs> our one garage set I built out as basically like a, 
a pretend garage set. Then we have our casual set that high side, low side is shot on with our preppy uh, beat up Ikea couches and stuff. We have our uh, product studio, which has a big background uh, with the products on it. And then we actually have a big psych wall set up, which is really far out because we have these uh, really killer um, LED lights that can go to any color that you can imagine. Nice. So we can we could change that out. And that, that's been really cool to shoot some like still photography for products. And I've put some of my cool bikes out there and like taken pictures of that, you know, like, I don't know where else you would get an opportunity to use something like that. But the studio is really killer. You know, we have a lot of talented folks that, that know how to operate everything in there. I'm, I'm jealous in many ways. Cause I think it's funny as I've started to get into photography more and whatnot and you go, Oh, I want to take a picture of this thing or put it, whatever. And you go, <laughs> Oh, my dog bed's in the way. I've got this awful, <laughs> like, there's no backdrop in my house anywhere right. that I want anyone to see. This wallpaper yeah. on the wall behind me is the most horrifying <laughs> thing on the planet. You know, like, just one of those things. So, yeah. So, what's your official title? I don't know if I've ever known that. I've just started shooting the breeze with you oh, with CTR back in the day. It, uh, it has changed over the years. So, I initially started at Revzilla, like, before Revzilla, I, I, I was uh, running my own motorcycle shop. So as some other independent business owners know, um, running your own biz can be very stressful and it could, it could uh, kind of make you dislike the thing that you like the most pretty, pretty rapidly. So I was feeling the burn, man. Like, you know, I loved all my customers and I loved the bikes that I worked on, but it was all the other stuff. Like the fact that, you know, to have, to pay the taxes and pay the insurance and everything to really truly cover me in case anything went south. Cause I was, welding frames and building wheels and building engines and everything, you know, on, on bikes. So very high liability there. Um, so I was making it work, you know, I didn't take any loans out or anything like that, you know, and, and I was pretty successful for the time that I, I was running the shop. Um, but it was just really, really burning me out. So uh, I had a couple of friends that already worked at Revzilla and I'm like, what's that like, you know, you work in a motorcycle store that's in the internet, like, what, how, you know, I've only worked in real shops and uh, they're like, yeah, man, you know, you could get involved over there. There's a ton of different departments and disciplines and kinds of people that we need. And um, you could work in the motorcycle world and collect a steady paycheck and have vacation time at Denny's and all that kind of stuff. And also still get a killer discount on, on parts and gear. So I ended up getting in there uh, in the customer service department as a Harley parts pro. That was my first title there because I had worked on and, and built quite a few Harleys and stuff. Um, so it, it was, it was cool to be valuable uh, to the team in that regard, where it's like, I could add a lot of technical value to the phone calls. You know, if customers called and say, Hey man, I'm thinking about throwing these cams in my, in my twin cam or something like that. You know, I, I ride like this, what do you think? And I could speak intelligently about different cams or, um, you know, different modifications people would make. And, and it's tough because not a lot of people have had that hands-on experience to be able to like, you know, talk about hard parts to that extent. So it, it was really cool. I got to talk to a lot of cool people that were building bikes or had really neat projects. Since I've always had, um, you know, a bunch of weird old bikes that I've worked on. If we got a guy who called in who maybe was working on his modern Harley and just in passing, I said, Hey man, you know, what kind of other bikes you have? Because you know, we try to keep track of the bikes that our customers have and put them on their account. So we might be able to offer them parts for their other bikes too. So if a guy said, oh yeah, I have a 68 Bonneville, you know, and I'd be like, oh, I'd have a 68 Bonneville too, you know, and 
I got an old BSA. And then I get to talk to these guys who are like, holy shit, I called this place. And, uh, you know, I was just looking for tires for my new Harley. And I'm talking to this guy about 60s British bikes, you know. So that was uh, a lot of working in customer service was, was really, really pleasurable. The different interactions I had with folks. Now, we were uh, always kind of tight on staffing because basically since motorcycling, especially, you know, in our country is, is pretty seasonal. So you kind of have to be slightly understaffed in the spring and then slightly overstaffed in the winter. So it balances out. So, uh, you know, when, when the riding season hit, man, we were really slammed, you know, you're just, you go in and you turn on your phone and you're on the phone all day. Uh, and in between sentences, you're, you're typing out emails, you know, I know our customer service team right now is getting slammed harder than ever mm-hmm. right now. So, so props to all those folks there, but, but it, it's wild, you know, the, the, the thing is, it's like there's so many pieces of the puzzle that make all that work properly um, from, you know, the logistics side of it, being able to tell a customer like, hey, you know, your order is in this status, it's coming from this warehouse, it'll be at your place in two days. And having the, uh, the technology on the back end, like having all the folks that set up, um, you know, the administrative side of, of how the website works, the back end that all the employees use, um, to keep track of all that and have all that stuff work, you know, in conjunction with the inventory and, and then also using the front side of the site that works super fast. So you can say, you know, a customer calls in and says, Hey, you know, like, uh, I got a 40 inch chest, like what kind of jacket, you know, what size jacket should I, should I get in this one particular brand? And I could bring up the size chart real quick. And, you know, the whole idea in customer service over at Revzilla was like a single contact point. So like the worst thing that you deal with with customer service when you call a place is, you know, oh, I don't know. Let me ask this other guy or, you know, like, we'll get back to you. You know, like that's Hold a, on a second. I got to transfer you. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> right. That, that is a bummer experience. So Rebzilla always tried to make it so that, you know, we, we could handle the person as best as possible with just, you know, one person or, or even, you know, sometimes a, a customer service representative might be connected with someone you know, that has a question that's a little bit over their head, but we would be proactive in, in getting back to them as soon as possible. We'd call them back or, you know, do the email thing. We also have chat too. Um, but my time in CS was, was really fulfilling. It was really educating. Um, you know, there, there's a, a lot to learn about modern bikes and the technology that goes into the bikes. Because most of my experience has been with old bikes. You know, my shop, I, I worked on primarily pre-1980 British and American bikes and some Japanese bikes as well. So when I got to Revzilla, um, you know, I had to start learning about uh, IMUs and, and uh, you know, like super high-tech ABS and GPS units and Bluetooth uh, communicators and all this tech that I had never messed with. I had been riding my whole life and I had never messed with a lot of this stuff that I had to learn about. And then also like the different levels of armor CE1, CE2, all the different types of helmets, boots and gloves and all that kind of stuff, man. So it was like information overload. I went in there thinking I knew a whole bunch about motorcycling and then I was like, whoa, okay, there's definitely a lot more out there for me to learn. Um, But really great team of people with a wide variety of different riding experiences and all that kind of stuff. So I learned a lot from them. And then what had happened was that um, the media and content team uh, you know, our video team needed a person who could work on bikes, move bikes around, knew the back end of the website so they could do all the admin stuff, uh, you know, and, and 
could ride bikes when needed, you know, as, as you know, uh, modeling opportunities arose, you know, to have someone in some gear and go buy on a bike or something like that. Um, so I ended up getting hooked up with the video team after a couple years there. And I was hired on the team as a video production coordinator. So basically what a VPC does is uh, orders all of the parts and gear that are going to be shot in a video, keeps track of it, um, sets it up, you know, maybe unpackages it, uh, gets it ready for a video uh, studio shoot, sets it up in the studio um, to get a good example of what the product table would look like when the video is shot. And just basically does as much legwork as possible so that when everyone goes into the studio to shoot the video, it's, it's really quick and easy. So um, a lot of that had to do with like uh, installing parts on bikes. So if we were going to shoot a set of exhaust pipes or something like that, you know, we may have that on a stand in the video, but for the B-roll, we'll show it on the bike or maybe we'll show some sound clips uh, of the exhaust. So I would install the parts on the bike. We'd run it, record that, then take the stuff back off. And sometimes those used parts would get sold, you know, at a discount in the warehouse or, you know, they would go in our inventory to, to swap uh, off and on other bikes. So I did that for a couple years. And then uh, we know our buddy Lemmy had, had moved on to a, 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 new, a new gig. You know, his commute was super long and crazy. And, and you know, he had a lot of faith in, in my mechanical ability, you know, because he and I had a lot of really, really great conversations about, just mechanical stuff, you know, we would talk about the goofiest stuff, you know, cars, trucks, lawnmowers, whatever, you know, just tools. So he and I really were on the level as far as like, you know, just interest in mechanical stuff. Um, and he was a really, you know, intelligent writer and, and showed me a lot about like how to look for stuff to write about just in your regular day-to-day -day motorcycle life, you know? And, and so I, I learned a lot from working with Lem. Uh, over that, that first couple of years in video and Spurge, of course, too. And then, uh, you know, obviously our, our buddy Brandon, too, had come over. Brandon and I were actually on the same team in customer service. Yeah. So he and I worked back to back uh, answering phones in the customer service department. And now we're both in the video team. But Brandon originally came over to the video team uh, producing Cycle Gear videos because, uh, you know, when the whole thing happened with uh, Revzilla and Cycle Gear teaming up, Brandon started making some of their product videos, but now Brandon's been making our product videos. So him and Spurgeon pretty much attack uh, riding gear and, and tires and some luggage and stuff. And now my role basically as a, a host, technically, now to finally answer your question, point <laughs> later, uh, my current role at Revzilla is a media host. So uh, there is some overlap there, obviously, with me uh, doing the high side, low side. Uh, show for a couple of years, you know, I was still a VPC at that point, but it really helped me get comfortable on camera. You know, it's, it's pretty weird and intimidating to sit down in front of three cameras with like crazy, super, you know, baseball stadium lights on your face and be like, go ahead and have a normal conversation. Keep the energy up. Keep, you know, keep smiling. Like, don't sound dumb. <laughs> Can we crack open a beer to do this shoot? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But honestly, you know, how high side, low side uh, spawned basically was us just talking about bikes in the lunchroom, you know, cause, cause uh, you know, all of us are pretty diehard motorcyclists. You know, I live and breathe bikes 24 seven. Um, you know, I'm not really into much else. I'm into, you know, obviously my awesome wife and spending time with her and, and riding mountain bikes and my dog and stuff like that. But um, you know, my, my whole gig every day is messing with motorcycles no matter what. So, 
I would have these conversations with my friends at the lunch table about, you know, building an engine or doing a race or something like that. And some other folks would be like, man, that's like really interesting what you guys are talking about. Like I'm, I'm learning stuff just from sitting with you guys at the lunch table. You should like record this stuff, you know? So that kind of rolled its way into to what happened with high side, low side. We had some growing pains in the beginning, of course, trying to figure out like the format and the structure. And, and after I think a couple episodes, we, we, we figured out like, all right, we need a guy who's a host. We'll have a topic that we'll kind of hash out a little bit in the beginning, but not too much, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and we basically set it up with the question and answer format so that we could keep it somewhat succinct, you know, because people, um, at least with our videos have a hard time watching them for mm-hmm. an extended period of time. So we try to keep it around a half hour or so, but it's been great, man. You know, like some of, uh, some of my favorite things we've done at work are like the one-off uh, projects. Like last year we did the Indian FTR giveaway, you know, so I got to go out with the team to California to out by San Bernardino and uh, by Arrowhead Lake. And uh, I had, Spurgey and I picked up the FTR in Vegas and I rode it from Vegas to San Bernardino and I'm riding a bike that wasn't even out yet. It wasn't even available to the public. Yeah. And like, you know, being a, I I'm 41 years old. I started riding motorcycles when I was about five years old to get to ride a killer new Indian that, that no one had even seen yet, you know, in real life and all the way across the desert and, and go to California. And then, that whole time we were in California, we got to ride the killer mountains, like up by like Arrowhead and stuff. And, uh, you know, like, and it's, it's definitely gnarly. Like when we do those shoots that are on, on, you know, we go to a location, you work from a couple hours before sunrise to a couple hours after sunset, you need to use all the time you possibly can. So you kind of seeing stars by the end of the day, you're so tired, but you, everyone, everyone is doing it together. So you're, you, you kind of, that energy is there. You're, you see what you're coming up with, you know, like you get to see some of the video clips at the end of the day and like, you know, you catch that golden hour and you see the bike, you know, carving up the, the mountains at the golden hour or, you know, just some weird shot we had with the mountains in the background and the lights are on in the bike or something like that. And you're like, damn dude, you know, like this is just killer. So when we get that footage from those trips and then hand it over to our post-production team and they edit it out, and you get to see that, you know, we record like a million hours of footage for like a five minute video, which is crazy. I could never imagine being in post-production and be like, okay, we're going to like cut out like 90% of this stuff and just put it in the archives, I guess. Um, but, you know, I think it's those super challenging uh, shoots like that, that just really, really get you super stoked and motivated. And uh, I think we came back with a really good product with that. You know, we did another one in Texas in the fall where we shot some, uh, you know, some of our, our gear, some of our house brands. And, uh, you know, that was really fun too. I got to ride a new Scrambler 1200. Um, I got oh, to geez, ride. Dude. <laughs> I've, I've ridden one. It's amazing. Oh my God, dude, that is such a fun bike. And I, you know, I've had old Scramblers, like legit 60 Scramblers and I had a 900 Scrambler. And then when I got on the 1200, you know, I initially thought it looked a little bit weird because since it's so tall, the seat is so thin. Yeah. And I was like, ah, that looks kind of weird to me. You know what I mean? But then like, if it did have a big monster, like six inch thick seat on it, like the old ones, you would never be able to touch the ground. Yeah. You'd need tilts. Um, it's, it's like saddling a horse when you get on that. It thing. is. It's, it's a big. monster. <laughs> yeah, it's a monster machine. But uh, I got to ride the new uh, street twin, which I fell in love with. Um, and then even a couple other bikes that we, you know, we had borrowed. Um, there was a big, uh, 
what do you call that strata liner we rode that big uh cruiser machine it's a i think it's a yamaha with a it's like a warrior motor the oh my i can't believe it's escaping me because long haul paul had one for the, the venture the, the yamaha venture is that what you're talking about or, it didn't have, or did they have uh, a pro, pro version of that or with or without? kind of had like a stripped down version. Yeah, there was yeah. no bags on it. But beautiful bike, man. I couldn't believe how powerful it was. Um, we rode a CBR out there, you know, and that's just it, man. Like, I really love all different types of motorcycles. So, like, getting an opportunity to ride all these different bikes um, is just like a dream, really. It, it's such a unique ex um, perspective that you have. And I'm really glad that you led into that because a lot of these details about where you've been and, and your career and your previous business I've had, I'd forgotten. And I'd love talking about the motorcycle industry with people. Cause I think there's a piece that as the consumer myself and other people we don't know about, we yeah. don't always appreciate. And at the same time, without knowing that, how do we help guide the future to make this sport successful? Um, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's exciting to, to pick that stuff up. And yeah. for you, I mean, a guy that, like you said, blood, sweat and tears and running your own shop, and then coming into this situation has got to be pretty refreshing. Dude, I don't know how, you know, I've had some other people come up to me like, how did you get that gig? And I'm like, I don't know, man, just <laughs> in the right place at the right time, you know? Um, but I mean, the one common theme that I've always found, you know, even when I worked at, I worked at another motorcycle shop back in the day was just like, people appreciated how passionate I was about bikes and it, it comes through. So they're like, dude, you know, that that's everything it's just be be into whatever you're into 110 percent, and and stuff will work out you know i think some people maybe sell themselves short a little bit by by second guessing themselves a little bit you know but you know and i, I definitely have had my times of self-doubt you know especially getting in front of the camera and feeling all awkward and, and all that kind of stuff that was never really my my forte i'm usually the kind of guy who just turn the stereo on and close the shop door and just wrench away alone for hours and be perfectly content uh, but the, the, the main takeaway really is that I always love talking to people about bikes, especially or traveling or anything like that. So, I mean, that, that's the easiest part of the gig is just talking about, you know, stuff that I'm into. It, I totally think that's it. I mean, obviously you and I talk a little bit in the show prep here and things like that, but it's, it's amazing how motorcycles unite a community. Um, and there's a lot of jokes about stereotypes and, people being in their own little section of motorcycling, but it seems yeah. like when two people meet, even if they're on different bikes in different places, yeah. they find things in common like that. Yeah. Two seconds at a gas station, and you end up talking to somebody for an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Absolutely, that's the case. Yeah, um, it's awesome, you know, and I, I do find like, when you talk about people getting wrapped up in the stereotypes and kind of pigeonholing themselves in the, into, into like one kind of motorcycle or one style, or, you know, whatever. That's cool. You know, like, I, I guess, you know, if you're only a Harley person or only a dirt bike person, like, that's cool. Um, but, you know, what's a drag is when they're like, oh, why would you ever ride anything else? And it's just like, dude, you know, as soon as you throw a leg over anything, whether it's a scooter or a, a big ass, you know, a bagger or something like that, or a mini bike, like, whatever, dude, it's all fun. That's uh, that's it. I've, I've been trying to sample as many bikes as I can get a chance anytime. And there's been many, you know, there's been a handful I've ridden them. I'm like, that is totally not for me, but I'll tell you what, that's a good time. I don't care what yeah. you say. Right. You never bummed. There's definitely been times where I've ridden bikes where I'd be like, man, this seat hurts my butt, but you know, the rest of the bike is rad or it makes a weird sound at, you know, this whatever speed or something like that. But that was my one takeaway with the, uh, with the FTR, the headlight was really whack. Like the headlight, 
looked fine when you're going straight, but as soon as you lean the bike over the headlight, basically just shine somehow mm. at the front tire. And when we were riding up the mountains in California at night, I had to wait for a car to come around me so I could use the car's headlights Ooh. to shine way up the mountain. And I'm like, damn, this bike was so killer until it got dark out. <laughs> right. That's like a whole other podcast right there. Like what are, what are things that the motorcycle industry to this day seems to be ignoring? Like we're getting TFT dash and cruise control and fuel injection and, and TPI for two strokes, all that stuff. It's like, Hey, seats and headlights, man, they right. still suck. <laughs> right, dude. Yeah. yeah, they've sucked since the beginning. I had my little uh, 70 Yamaha out last week and uh, I think the headlight on it is like, I don't know, 18 watts or something like that one lumen yeah and i was just like wow like i was almost better off just holding my iphone led light out in front of me over the handlebars um so yeah i would say that that they maybe have come a little bit of a, yeah. of a way since the 70s but they definitely could still use some work it's uh, I, I listen to guys lately and I laugh as I think about it because I mean they're they're on it. I'm I'm like a super functional dude that it's like, well, I'm gonna make this part instead of go buy one or you yeah. know, like this bike is good enough. Um but they talk about like it's the it's the sex appeal and it no matter how crazy I want to be about functional, I'm like, you don't off-road and scrambler nine hundred <laughs> because it's the most functional you're you're in love no. with this bike that's what yeah. makes you love all these bikes so it's so funny that we we you know you go on and on about all the function but in the reality it's definitely the sex appeal that made us buy that oh, bike yeah. every time <laughs> yeah and i always think man it's like when you when you really challenge yourself you know you kind of do things the hard way like those are the most memorable rides you know you're <laughs> I hate to say it, you know, like with my, with my new KTM 250, it's so damn good at everything. And I will never be a good enough rider to ever reach the limits of what that bike can do. Um, so when I go ride like all day and I'm just shredding, you know, and I, everything works as expected, it's, it's tiring and it's awesome and it's great. I feel like I'm getting faster every time I go, but you know, I could definitely remember more about the dual sport rides that I did on my 72 Triumph 750 that was never supposed to be a dirt bike at all. And just think like, man, how did I get through that rock garden with four inches of suspension? And how did I go down that mountain with just terrible drum brakes on that thing? Uh, but, you know, like the modern machines are just so good at everything that uh, I don't know. It, it, I always think of it as just like, it's the same thing as that, that, you know, it's, it's more fun to ride a slow bike fast than a fast bike slow. It's that same thing. You, you want to be able to push the machine to its max, you know? So that's why I, I, I spent a lot of time riding my old bikes because you can do that. Like you can hit the throttle stop on an MX-175 when you're going up a big gnarly hill and, and not loop out and murder yourself. But if I try to hit the throttle stop on my KTM, it goes into orbit at light speeds, you know, so, um, but they're all great, dude. You know, they're all great. I do find that sometimes like with the super duper tech heavy machines, like, um, you know, we have that versus 1000 LTSE plus whatever monster machine at, at work right now. It's a beautiful bike, you know, killer motor, big 1000 CC four banger. Um, but it's got, so many doodads and electronic things you know when i went out to ride it i'm looking at the tft dash and i'm trying to understand the suspension settings and everything like i probably should have studied the owner's manual for a few weeks before i went out for a ride on the thing but i just wanted to check it out so 
it 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 distracted me from from what the bike actually was. You know, the technology that's there to to enhance the ride. Um, and don't get me wrong, the stuff works awesome. You know, that, that, that all the IMU, the lean angle sensitive ABS, like that stuff is really, really great, especially for new riders, you know. Um, but trying to figure that out, you know, it's just like when you buy a new piece of technology in your house, new computer or whatever media player thing or something like that. And it's that, that first kind of few times you use it, you're like, oh my God. I should have just go should just go back to my old phone. I actually know how to open it. <laughs> That's funny. I, I totally have that impression. I rode the uh, XSR 900 and then yeah. I rode the FG09, FJ, FJ09, which yeah, is now, what, what, what do they call that now? MT09 Tracer. Anyway, yeah. I rode them back to back and I think I have a bad opinion of the FJ09 because when I rode back into the parking lot to demo, I realized, oh, that's still in that rain mode that they told me right. to leave in. I went, Oh, I totally robbed myself. Of yeah. What would have been a great experience. Yeah. Shame. Yeah. I found when I rode that uh, speed twin out in Texas, there was, if I just kept it, I think in the standard mode, I could wheelie it. Mm. And then if I put it in sport mode, I would have to go and like take off the wheelie mitigation or something like mm. that. I just remember I was like, I was trying to be a hooligan on this bike and the one <laughs> police kept stepping in and, and making the thing stutter and fall on its face. I'm like, I just want to do a wheelie. Come on, let's go. But, so uh, good. Yeah. Part of it is just figuring out how to, how to cheat the computers into letting you be bad. <laughs> that was buddy of mine. Let me ride his Africa twin the other day. Um, we finally got to do it off road some player and, uh, it's my buddy's bike and it's a huge bike for me after being yeah. on a scrambler, which is really, it's the same weight, but it's just more compact. And, uh, and that was it. I was like, I'm gonna leave all this stuff on. And yeah, before long, it was like, all right, tell me how to turn this off because I'm ready yeah. to be stupid with it. Because you're, it, it's amazing how the bike turns on a dime, you know, yeah. like you, it, it does become this hooligan machine. When you turn that stuff off. Yeah. 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 It's neat. Once you figure it out. I mean, I, I honestly, you know, my tiger 800 is a 2012, so it's still very basic. Um, it's ABS off or on whatever. There's no rider modes or anything like that. That, that bike is very simple. Uh, but I do really like having ABS and initially when I started riding that bike off-road I would always just turn the ABS off because I wanted to be able to, to swing the ass end out to get around stuff or you know if I needed to pitch the bike sideways in, in preparation for a turn or something like that you know I could but then when I did the uh, backcountry discovery route for the first time you know it's a lot of just logging roads and dirt roads and gravel and stuff like that and Sometimes a deer will jump out or, you know, somebody will be pulling out of their cabin or something like that. And you've got to get on the brake pretty hard on that stuff. And then I found that the ABS really worked awesome in that scenario. And then I started to, to be really comfortable with grabbing like a huge handful of front brake on like pea gravel because the ABS would do its, its thing and the bike would stay upright. I wouldn't end up locking up the front wheel. So then I really started to get used to riding with it on off-road and, and I started to really appreciate it. And I'm sure now, you know, the technology that's in the new ones, you know, that bike is eight years old now. I'm sure the technology in the new ones is that much better. Um, but it, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, there's definitely a, a learning curve to figure out how, how all that stuff works and, and which modes work best for you and everything like that. But I definitely think it's a good thing. You know, there's some folks, some of my buddies are only into old stuff and they're like, ah, oh, what the hell, you need all that fuel injection, disc brakes for, you know, all the old shit works fine. You know, I'm like, yeah, it does. but this stuff is better, definitely. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. 
it's, I, I'm excited to talk with you um, because I feel like you, you have this really wide breadth and taste of bikes because you have like, there's all these pictures on your Instagram of like all these choppers. I know that you've gotten into yeah. a lot of classic bike builds and stuff, but yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, you've got a relatively modern two stroke and actually, I mean, you fought with yourself about that. Did you want TPI or carbureted? I think, I think you fought yeah. with that. You wasn't sure. Yeah. Excuse me. You weren't yeah, sure which way you would it. <laughs> I guess some of my, uh, my old man, old bike mode came through and I got the carburetor. Honestly, I, I just, it was one, the bike was like $2,000 cheaper because it was a leftover and still yeah. had the carburetor. Um, and also I was still a little bit iffy about the first year TPI. Um, and, you know, when I start looking at plastic parts and little things like that for an off-road bike, I'm like, well, a carburetor is a big hunk of aluminum. Um, that's very, very hard to damage, you know, but it's proven itself. The TPI has obviously proven itself. You know, I think, um, the bugs have been worked out. I, I've ridden a couple of them and I was really impressed. They do feel a little bit lean, you know, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe I'm just used to tuning my carburetors a little bit fat, you know, but, but I did have some tuning issues with my carburetor when I first got my, when I got my 250 XCW, cause it's got that, uh, McCuney TMX carburetor on it. So, uh, you know, previous to that, uh, you know, the KTMs and Huskies used to come with a Kian and the Kian was, was great. People had figured out how to dial those in and, and tune them really well. And then some, for some reason they switched over to the, uh, the TMX carburetor and uh, I had some issues with it. Just, it was acting lean and rich at the same time. And uh, you know, so very, very lean at, at idle and, and just maybe uh, eighth throttle, you know, it would over rev. Um, and, and I'm like, what is going on with this? But as soon as you got over that, the bottom end, you know, it, it was too rich. It was, it was real verbally and unpredictable and it was hard to get it to clear out and, and come on smooth. So I changed the jetting a bunch. I, I, I went through the bike. I actually had solid go through the bike because I'm like, man, I know this thing can run better. Um, and they were kind of like, that's just how it is. You know, I'm like, nah, I, I've <laughs> right. ridden a lot of carburetors. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to keep messing with it, you know? So I found this thread now, this is me being like the ultimate hypocrite because I always, you know, bust people's chops about saying, oh, I read this thing on a forum. Sometimes you got to do something. Right? <laughs> so I found this thread on Thumper Talk about uh, the Jarvis mod to the McCuney TMX. And it was basically just resolving a couple of the weird issues about the carburetor. You, you would end up, um, you loop the float uh, drain bowl, uh, the float overflow drain up over the top so it would quit uh, barfing out so much fuel when you were just riding around. The baffle that went down around the main jet needed to get drilled out to allow more fuel in there because the bike could drink more fuel than the baffle would allow in down around the main jet. And then the throttle slide itself, I don't know, you probably mess with a bunch of carburetors yourself, but I know. <laughs> <laughs> not, not so much, that's more of the story later. <laughs> yeah, well, with carburetors, the generally one of the one of the tunable aspects of a carburetor is the slide cutaway. So the slide cutaway usually will be you know around quarter throttle, you know half five eighths throttle or so. That that's where you are riding most of the time on most bikes, even street or dirt. So the thr the throttle cutaway has a lot to do with how the bike runs in that area that you spend most of your time in. So. Um, the Thumper Talk thread, the Jarvis mod thread said to file out the little notch in the, that it's already in the slide, 
And what that did would make a better um, Venturi uh, vacuum signal over the pilot jet, which made sense because then the bike could run richer down at idle, you know, and then you could have it leaner just above that. So those two, those two fixes really like kind of coincided with the issues that I was having. Like if you're familiar with, with carburetor tuning, you know, there's, there's several, several circuits that the bike runs on throughout the, the rev range and throughout how uh, open or close the throttle is. So I'm like, oh yeah, ex that's exactly it. What these guys are saying will fix the lean idle and then the rich slide. So I did the things, it took like 10 minutes, you know, I put it all back together and boom, man, the thing has run perfect since, you know, it, it runs really, really smooth. It starts easier. It runs great. So, and I talked to a few other folks that have two stroke uh, KTMs and Huskies that have that TMX carburetor. And they're like, yeah, dude, you know, I took my JD jet kitting, uh, you know, jets and needles out of it. I put the stock stuff back in and did those little nods that didn't cost anything. It took 10 minutes to do it and it really made it run well. Uh, but hopefully somebody who's listening out there, can benefit right. from that information <laughs> um, it's, it's it's a weird thing it's obviously and that's again i guess i want to talk to you because you're into you're into adventure you talk about mabdr you do vintage racing you now you've got a 252 stroke i now have a 252 stroke uh, yeah i guess for for the good of the order is i just bought that so we've had it now like a month and it yeah. came with the electron carburetor and this is yeah. my first carbureted bike ever yeah and, and as far as i can tell it's perfect. So I'm yeah. not gonna touch it. Yeah, man. A lot of folks have said that. A lot of folks have said that um, the uh, the electron really resolves all those issues. It's really interesting how the electron works compared to some other um, some other carburetors. You know, it's the it's the shape of that needle, that metering rod, I guess they call it. Um, but yeah, we could get into carburetor science all day. I'll make your podcast like five hours. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. The mechanical engineer over here goes, Oh, he said Venturi. And my mind was like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I don't know how this works, but I theoretically know how it works. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating, man. You think about, you know, I, I, I went to a, uh, a world war II air show a couple years back, um, out at Reading. And to think about these airplanes from, you know, that were made in the thirties that have carburetors and stuff like that. And they go 300 miles an hour upside down, you know, like what, you know, like it's just bananas to think about these little things that are, it seemed like so delicate and, and, and uh, just hard to tune and hard to get your head around. Like, you know, they've been powering things for, for a hundred years, but the fuel injection stuff, obviously, man, that stuff works great. You know, like it, my little brother is really into tuner cars and stuff. And he has one car that he built that has a, a nitrous setup. I never mess with nitrous. So he, he taught me a lot about how to make that stuff work. And now he's got another car he just built with a, a turbo. So, you know, it, it's just so cool how all this stuff works. If you're like a mechanical person, you know, like I have a turbo diesel van now. I never had a diesel anything. I'm like, what do you mean? It doesn't have any ignition system. There's like no distributor. There's no spark plugs. Like how does it work? Um, you know, awesome. but it's fascinating. All this, all this shit, you know, it, all these machines do are, are spin a thing, you know, they're just spinning machines. So whether that thing is spinning a sprocket or a drive shaft or whatever, you know, or your lawnmower blade, the shit is all fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah, my buddy Jeff always says, all it is is one giant air pump. Runs it is. Gasoline. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's totally it. That's funny. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I was creeping your Instagram, and it looked like you did. 
you did the custom chopper thing for quite a while and then yeah. i don't know how that coincided with the vintage triumph stuff i knew your vintage triumph stuff from revzilla's common tread right away so i was like totally on that like oh my god he scrambles a real scrambler <laughs> <laughs> yeah so zach quartz came up with this really killer idea for uh an article called bikes that made me where we would write about bikes that that made a really big impact on our lives zach's a really interesting dude he definitely gets like the whole passion side of motorcycle riding he really likes the people side of it you know like there's not much there's not many folks out there in the motorcycle world that that want to tackle that because it's it's kind of intangible you know it's very easy to read a spec sheet and ride a motorcycle and be like this is how it is but you know like meeting him he's just like man you know like this bike makes me feel like this or i did this ride and i felt like this on this ride like you know so I, I, he's one of the more interesting motorcycle dudes i've met recently um so he had this great idea to write about these bikes that 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 had made a big impact on our lives so i wrote about my 70 triumph that i built um i guess going on about 15 years ago at this point so that was you know i had messed with old cars and stuff like that before that and and uh you know, I built, I built a really killer uh, custom lowrider bicycle when I was in high school. You know, I was always into modifying stuff, and and a lot of my family was into bikes and cars and stuff like that. So I definitely grew up like around a gearhead family. Um, but getting into building other bikes after that one, uh, I, I I built a couple bikes where I really went like over the top, you know, and, and really like try to make everything from scratch and. I restored a 70 Electroglide, which has a million more parts than any other motorcycle on earth. So that took forever. And then I got hit by a car on it and then I had to restore it again. Um, but yeah, man, I think, you know, as far as like building custom bikes goes, what's really cool is, is having the tools and machines and just having a vision and then just being like, well, it's only metal. You know what I mean? And then you just make a part and you kind of step back and look at it. And I would imagine it's, you know, I'm not musically talented in any way, but I feel like there's some sort of flow, you know, like mental, like flow state that you get in when, when you're being creative, you know, and, and I think like when, when I'm working on a bike that, that I can change the style of, or the, you know, the shape of, or how it sits, you know, even just the stance of a bike, um, depending on how long, long or short the fork is or how big or small the wheels are and all that, even the selection of tires. And old bikes give you a lot of freedom because there's no, you're not trying to hide a fuel pump. You're not trying to hide, you know, big giant brakes or anything like that. Drum brakes are inherently more, you know, attractive to me. You know, um, you could polish a drum brake plate and everything, all the guts are on the inside. You know, so I, I think working with older bikes gives you that freedom to be a little bit more creative. There's so much simpler. Um, but yeah, so I, I mess with a lot of that, but I've always had a modern bike too. You know, so when I was building my 70 Triumph, I also had a, uh, a speed triple 955i. So there's something to be said for not even thinking about the bike really and just going on a motorcycle ride and then just be like, oh man, I'm going to go see my friend in New York or I'm going to go on a trip down to Georgia or, you know, and just hop on a modern bike and hit the button and go and, and you know, I, I had pretty strong feelings about that bike. That was the first bike I bought brand new. Um, and, you know, I was pretty young when I got that bike. And, and I had a lot of really killer trips on it, a lot of memorable trips on that bike. But I think that, 
you know, a lot of, a lot of folks find themselves in that position where, where they're like, they're only into old bikes. And then most of their experience is working on it or building it or, you know, taking really short trips on it, you know, and, and I've taken really long trips. When I restored that 70 FL, I rode that thing up to Quebec from Jersey and back. Like that was one of the first trips I took on it. I've had my, my black and gold 70 triumph down to Georgia and back and uh, up to Vermont and back. Like I've, I've gone pretty far on old bikes. Once you get the ignition and the uh, charging systems figured out and throw a new carburetor on there, they're really pretty reliable, but you can't change the fact that usually they're only a four speed transmission. Everyone drives a hundred miles an hour now on their cars while they're on the right. phone. So when you're screaming a bike just to keep up at 65 miles an hour, it's definitely pretty stressful to have these big SUVs passing you at a hundred, especially where we live. But I really have, you know, I, I get a lot of pleasure out of both modern and vintage bikes because of just, you know, they're strong points. They're strong, you know, like, like the simplicity is what turns me on about the vintage bikes and the fact that you don't have to go a million miles an hour for the thing to really impress you. And then the, the modern bike thing, man, I think, I think to my Tiger, when I first got my Tiger 800, I threw my wife on the back and we rode all the way out to Calgary. We did 6,500 miles in two weeks on that bike. That's awesome. Was a lot of like, 90 miles an hour all day on the highway, like across <laughs> North Dakota, you know, two up, fully loaded, you know, windshield up, you know, heated grips on and, and really comfortable, just jamming, yeah. you know, and, uh, and also, you know, taking that bike off road, the fact that that bike can go 90 miles an hour all day, two up, fully loaded, and then also go into single track and ride an enduro trail, like adventure bikes are just so bitching, man, like that, yeah. that blows my mind that that one machine can do those such a broad range of things. Uh, but yeah, you know, long story short, I guess, is that I really appreciate old and new bikes just the same. Yeah, that's, I don't know, it's, to me it's refreshing because I'm dabbling in so many disciplines and then my dad's about to retire. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to adapt to his type of riding because I'm in this other space where I'm getting into two strokes and racing and this, that, and the other. My dad's just happy to be on the road at this yeah, yeah. So he's like, I'm just about to turn 68. Like, I'm just happy to be here. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I need to change because there's no way we're changing dad at this point. That's just right. done, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's funny how that stuff works. Yeah, I mean, you got to split your time up. You know, there's there's times where I'll go putt around on old bikes with my, with my buds or my little brother. And then I go out and ride really gnarly, you know, aggressive stuff on the modern 250. And then I race the the 74 Yamaha and the Arma uh, races. I had a really good race on Sunday. Um, but man, like I love all, all, all my bikes and any other bike I've ever thrown a leg over. Um, you know, what's surprising though is the gnarlier the bikes get, the more I'm cool with like admiring them from the side. <laughs> you know, like, like Ari and Zach just went out and rode those new Aprilias, which are like 220 horsepower motorcycles or whatever. Like even a car with 220 horsepower at this point is a pretty damn fast car. You're talking about a motorcycle that doesn't even weigh 500 pounds. You know, like that is insane. You know, I, I just feel like I made it this far in life, you know, riding motorcycles pretty much every day. You could really turn yourself into a splatter pretty quickly with that much horsepower on two wheels. Uh, but much props to the folks who can manhandle those really, really powerful bikes, are, uh, you know, around, I just don't know how you could ride that bike on the street. I, I would find it terribly annoying to have to ride a bike that's so fast and powerful, that slow in traffic. It, 
I totally think that is what continues to push me more and more into dirt. Yeah. Uh, that because I live between, you know, I live in Dayton, but Dayton, Cincinnati, I mean, I'm 47 miles from the Kentucky border. Like it's an almost yeah. a solid city from here to there. So, yeah, yeah. you know, the highway patrol, the cops, this, that, and the other, I'm like, you're just, yeah. you're just waiting and asking for it. And I'm like, you know, yeah. I can get tossed off a dirt bike and go as fast as I want most days. Right. It, it, it checks all yeah. the boxes with a lot yep. of us hag hassle. Yeah. And fast on <laughs> a dirt bike in the woods is like 25 miles an hour, you know, right. so you're, you're not really going to splatter yourself too bad. <laughs> that's it. Well, that's what I was going to tell you earlier is it's like, I want to do a track day and, uh, and props to, you know, Ari and all those guys. Cause I think they're all older, older than me anyway, but it's like, man, I got into this game late. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I like the safety of the, the 50 horsepower on this two stroke feels like a rocket ship. I oh my God. It's bananas. Yeah. It's bananas. <laughs> that's just it. It goes back to how the old bike thing is, you know, it's like, you feel like you're really pushing the limits. The person limits attraction and braking and cornering and all that. And, and, and the modern dirt bikes are so good. The suspension and brakes are so good. It makes you feel like a superhero, you know, like even, a, even, you know, just a, a kind of a novice could get on one of those bikes and conquer some pretty gnarly stuff. Uh, but, you know, I remember when I had my speed triple, I was in my twenties, you know, prime time for, for really twisting the throttle. And, and I just got to the point where like sitting in traffic, I was just like, this bike does not want to go slow. It's so angry just trying to just do the speed limit, you know, and, and it wasn't the bike's fault. It was made to ride crazy. Uh, but I think of a time where I was coming home from work in my crappy old Toyota pickup that's all rusty and beat up with a million miles on it. And I was stuck in traffic next to this uh, a guy in like a McLaren or something, you know, <laughs> And he's sitting in the same traffic jam and it's like, you know, a quarter million dollar car that can go like over 200 miles an hour. I'm like, yeah, I'm still just getting home from work. It's the same, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I, I definitely prefer off-road at this point just because the roads are so crazy. That's funny. And I'm at, I bet Philly's nuts. I want to get out there at some point um, for a million reasons. I'm a history buff. So there's so much yeah. going on in Philly. Though. Oh yeah. yeah. So, but I, I can Even South imagine. Jersey, man, I could show you some really cool historic stuff around South Jersey because all everything around here is super old. You yeah. know? So there's a lot of really neat, unique little pieces here and there, even going riding in the pines, you'll find some ruins of, of a house that it was there for 300 years or 400 years. You know, it's a lot of cool stuff out there. No, i I've uh, I've put an extra inch of travel on the uh, scrambler, so uh, I'm looking nice. to do some more adventure riding on that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Mr. Comrade sent me a link from uh, A and J Cycles. They had run a discount on a full Owens package. So uh, yeah. No way. Yeah. So I got it. I got the extra 30 millimeters in the front. Uh, Owens Owens shocks in the rear. So they're what is it? 20 20 millimeters over stock length. It's not wow. that much extra travel, but it's yeah, they're yeah. longer, so it, it equals out. Oh, it's yeah, cool. The front end is what I've always wished I would have had. The rear, I'm still kind of sorting that out to where I like it. So I need to. Yeah. I'm gonna put some knobby tires on it again and see how. That yeah, goes. that's but killer. I'm looking forward to that. And and you nailed it. That I love the dirt bike to learn new skills. I love the dirt bike for racing and getting way like deep in the woods and places I can never yeah. get before. And then I love getting back on the fat bike and realizing how much more I can now do. Right. Big fat yeah. Bike. It's awesome. Cross training is awesome. You know, like I have three off-road bikes at this point between the adventure bike and the two dirt bikes and, and, and riding one always benefits the other, you know, and I see it right away. Even, even riding a little Yamaha, um, since it's so low and light and small, I'll charge a corner 
you know, like third gear on that where I would, I would be afraid to on the KTM, but it just helps you pick the line. It, you know, the consequences aren't really that dire if, if you blow the corner because the thing is so light. Um, but, you know, you start kind of getting in that mental state where like, okay, I can hit this corner going this fast, you know, and, and I know how far I could push this front tire before it starts to give. And then you get on the modern bike that has way better suspension and all that kind of stuff. And, and the bike can handle it, of course. It's just getting your getting out of your own way. Yeah, it's all in your head, you know. Let's rewind for people that don't know. I just saw the picture of that Yamaha. So what bike is that? That's a 74 MX-175. And it's a, a 175 two-stroke. And it, and it weighs how much? 180 pounds. <laughs> when you it's said 40, light, you were not kidding. Yeah, it's 40 pounds lighter than, than our modern KTMs, you know. Yeah. that's pretty like that's pretty crazy when you think it's about crazy. it like it doesn't have the suspension but then again it's 40 pounds lighter. yeah it's insane well you figure there's no radiators the brakes are really tiny it's got magnesium brakes on it um you know the gas tank is aluminum uh it's one of the you know it's it's part of the first generation of bikes that had plastic fenders from the factory it's got uh i threw a set of aluminum handlebars on it but it's got big high shouldered alloy rims. You know, it's really, really ahead of its time. And it's just, you know, that bike is, is the father of the YZ, you know, which is still being raced today. Um, you know, the YZ had turned from a two stroke to a four stroke over, over the past, uh, you know, few years or so. Uh, but, you know, I grew up uh, riding dirt bikes. You know, I, I, know, I didn't race when I was younger, but I rode dirt bikes from, from a little kid all, all the way through my teenage years. And uh, I had an old RM80 which is really similar to this, this MX-175 that I have now. Uh, but it, it's neat. You start looking at the history and you look at, you know, the kind of racing that that bike did back in the day and, and how competitive it still is now. You know, it's, it's, it's really impressive. You know, it's neat to see. The thing is, when we talk about vintage motorcycles, vintage dirt bikes specifically, um, there are so many changes from the early 70s to the mid 80s. You know, when you look at um, most of the bikes now, that kind of gets into the Arma racing thing where uh, basically Arma racing is, as far as off-road racing, is divided into vintage, which is 74 and earlier, and then post-vintage, which is 1975 to 1999. Mm -hmm. So there's a ton of different classes because there were so many changes. You know, bikes had four inches of travel pretty much, uh, you know, in the rear only uh, until 74. It's four in the rear and seven in the front. And then 75, you started to see bikes like the MX specifically went to a monoshock. So then it starts getting more rear travel. I think they went to maybe seven inches at that point. Um, and then you start seeing these bikes like come the late 80s or the late 70s, really, really long travel, you know, and you start getting uh, leading axle forks. So the forks had, uh, you know, could have longer springs and more oil in them. Uh, and then you start seeing in the, in the early eighties, they start being liquid cooled, uh, so they could run tighter tolerances, higher compression and stuff like that. And, um, then they started getting six gears and then, um, going to a monoshock and going, you know, it's like, it's crazy that the progression of off-road motorcycles from 1974 to basically like 1987 was so drastic every year. It was just yeah. madness. Like there were so many technological advancements throughout those years. And then when you look at our bikes now, they're not much different than they were from 1987. 
This, this yeah. sounds like the peak bike discussion, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, okay, now we have TPI, we have much better, you know, suspension internals and stuff like that. But, but you look at some of those bikes from the late 80s, they have upside down fork, disc brake, liquid cooled, six gears, you know, like, they're, they're, they kind of got to a point, they're like, oh, how much better can they be? You know, we figured out the geometry, we figured everything out. Um, and they're around the same weight, you know, but, but I love all that shit, man, the history and, and, and who invented what, and what ideas stuck and what ideas didn't stick. And, you know, it, it's, it's really, really interesting. It's, I love reading those articles. Yeah. When you, like you said, you and Lemmy and started getting into that stuff and I'm glad you took me through that history just now of those dirt bikes. And I've yeah. been curious about that for a while. Just, just the ages. Cause it's like, you know, I've got this throwback bike with twin shocks and I'm like, well, that's yeah. how they used to be, but I don't know the exact way of how we got to the monoshock setup we do now. I just know dirt bikes have looked the same to me since I was, <laughs> you know, since I knew what a dirt bike was. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, you start, you know, it's really interesting. I, I did another, I did like a book report on that, Malcolm Smith uh, autobiography. Mm. Um, and, and that dude raced for so long. And he raced every version of, of all those bikes throughout those years and got used to each, each progression of those machines. There's some really, really great pictures in there of him ripping everything, you know, from old Huskies across the desert back in the sixties, all the way up through um, some, some twin shock and even monoshock Huskies uh, throughout the eighties. And, you know, it's neat, man. And I race with a lot of guys who are from that same generation. You know, there's, there's guys up over 70 years old that I race with, with Arma and, and they're like, yeah, my, my 87 is like a brand new bike to me, you know, <laughs> when they race both vintage. Um, but it's cool, man. It's really cool. Like I said, like we said in the beginning, they're all fun. They're all awesome in some way. It's just funny you brought up Malcolm Smith because I, I, he's like my motorcycle hero, I, I think, right away. Like, you know, Malcolm Smith yeah. and, you know, what's your favorite motorcycle movie? was well, like, dude, Dust of Glory and, and On Any yeah. Sunday, man. Like, yeah, I'm totally yeah. sucked up in that. So how that relates back to you is you, so you race vintage. You're, yeah. Are you doing hair scrambles on the 250 or are you doing yeah. enduro or both? both? And, yeah. And then you've also done hill climb on the vintage bike, right? I did one kind of like grassroots thing in the snow. I did yeah. at uh, the Monticello thing um or monticello whatever it is that snow mountain up in the mm -hmm. up north um but yeah i took the triumph out there i had the triumph 750 and uh, i put ice screws in the tires and i went out there you know i just figured i'd have some fun there's guys running sportsters and dinas and stuff up there and mm -hmm. there all kinds of different folks you know and, and i'm friends with uh you know the guy mel who puts on the race of gentlemen and and uh, my buddy Josh and, and, and Nick and all those dudes build um, those really early, like those pre-war Harleys, flatheads and stuff like that. And, and they, they get them running pretty strong. I mean, my nice. buddy Nick uh, Toscano, he, he builds those flatheads to be really surprisingly powerful. And those bikes are pretty light for their time period. So you're looking at a bike that's got like 30s, 1930s technology um, that is pretty competitive, surprisingly. Uh, but yeah, I got to go out there and run with those dudes and I, I had the old triumph and, and a lot of the, a lot of folks I think were, were thinking like they had to keep their weight forward to keep the thing from, from looping out, but we were on snow and ice. Yeah. So I just yeah. put my ass way on the back fender and getting that thing to plant and yeah, just <laughs> lean super far back and, and I could feel the bike dig through the snow and then get to the ice and then man, it hooked up just like Velcro and I was just kicking ass, man. I raced 
everybody I could possibly race. I was racing people outside of my class and just cleaning up that day. I was a, it was a really good day. It was a very expensive day because to sign up for all the different classes, it was, I don't know, like 30 bucks a class or something like that. I don't, I think I spent like $200 that day, but I won a couple t-shirts. So it was totally worth it. <laughs> I cannot put a price on glory. It's just not yeah, that's possible. It, glory is forever. <laughs> you were asking me before the show about the Kentucky race and people were like, you, what you define as fun is right. very different than what I call fun. We talk about type two fun. Have you ever heard of that? No, this would be the first. Uh, I think my buddy J JT made it out. The guy I work with and ride mountain bikes with and motorcycles with. He, we, we ride mountain bikes a lot, uh, especially at a pretty hard, hard uh, set of trails over here at the Wissahickon. And, uh, you know, we start talking about some of these climbs that just like, make you want to die like your just heart feels like it's going to pop out of your neck and your legs are on fire you're cranking up these hills and he's like yeah it's type two fun it's definitely sucks while you're doing it but when you're done you realize that it was fun and you want to go do it again but it, it's not like it's not a primary feeling <laughs> it's a secondary feeling it's it, it's the strangest thing i mean you said it you work working all day with the crew you know, doing these 12, 16 hour days with people or whatever. It's weird how the suffering yeah. at the time is awful. Right. And then after the fact, you're like, I want to feel oh, that right. sense of accomplishment again. Yeah. Like I, I'm yep. addicted to that. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. Enduro bike, mountain bike, working your ass off at work, any of that kind of stuff. Even like house projects, man. I, I'm not really a house project type guy. I've been a homeowner for over a decade. But I generally try to keep my uh, wrenching and, and work in the garage area on all the different bikes. But I recently rebuilt a room on the back of my house. I have a sun porch out there that was kind of ratty when we, when we got the house. So I redid all the walls and the floor and all this stuff. And man, it kicked my freaking ass. The whole time I'm like, damn it, this sucks. Like doing sheetrock, like I give those dudes so much credit that can do sheetrock really nicely and spackle and paint. And make, it really, really kicked my ass. I would have built probably 10 engines and the same time it took me to hang sheetrock in one room you know like i know my place um but when it you know now that it's finished man it looks really good and i'm i'm really happy it makes hanging out in there not that much better another type two fun scenario yeah true story <laughs> I, I roofed my house god what was that seven years ago and the storm blew off a bunch of some stuff and i'm not going to get into details but let's just say <laughs> i paid somebody to fix it i was yeah. not i was not messing with it this time uh, yeah. uh, which to me i flip i flip into that a lot of people are like oh i just take my my wheels and just have somebody else change the tires and i look at them yeah. all crazy like what yeah. you're just throwing money down the drain man so there i am spending thousands of dollars on shingles <laughs> but i won't spend yeah. 25 to 50 dollars to change yeah. a tire <laughs> as long as you're doing something yourself you're saving a couple bucks i guess yeah but dude i think about how many weekends i spent messing with that room and that i I could have been doing something that didn't suck as much, but it's worth it. You know, you, you take pride in the place you, you own and, and you work on it. And it's just, you're like, oh, cool. You know, that's better than it was before. It's the same enjoyment, you know, that I get out of the, messing with the old bikes and cars. You know, you, you try to make it a little bit better every time you touch it. But I guess this is a two-part question that just hit me. Um, you obviously do a lot of wrenching and you're into the customer service and the industry side. I have the perspective that I feel like very few riders actually spend right wrenching on their bikes. 
So what kind of advice would you give to somebody about like where to start learning on that? And then similar to what we just talked about, what, why should they do that? Um, there's a lot to say about that, to be honest. We have so, a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I do, I do have folks come up and ask me like, Hey man, how do I get into wrenching? I've never wrenched on anything before. You know, I'm afraid to do this. I'm afraid I'll mess it up or whatever. Uh, and you know, there, there's so many different tasks that you could take care of on your bike that, that are, are relatively easy. And then you could start tackling harder and harder stuff. So, you know, just start with changing the oil. You know, it's one bolt, one filter, you know, and get yourself a set of wrenches. You know, that's a, that's a really easy job. Uh, brake pads are super easy to do. Um, you know, I just put out, uh, well, Revzilla just put out a video series with uh, me showing you how to take your wheels off a bunch of different types of motorcycles so you can take them to the shop to have the tires not in the balance. So you can save yourself a bunch of bucks if you just pull the wheels off. So, you know, that's a little bit more complicated than, than an oil change, you know? So you're, you, you, gra you graduate, you step yourself up as you get more and more comfortable messing with the bike, changing the coolant. You know, it's, it's relatively easy on most motorcycles. Now um, you start getting into valve adjustments on, on a shim under bucket engine or, replacing a, a timing chain uh, tensioner um, or you know stuff like that it's a little bit more complicated but most most motorcycle stuff is is bicycle stuff you know it's basically a big ass bicycle with an engine so you know if you're not really afraid to wrench on your bicycle it's pretty much the same crap on your on your motorcycle except when you start getting into the engine part now thankfully i was fortunate enough to grow up you know, always wrenching on stuff. Like my grandfather was, was a machinist and, and uh, you know, my stepdad came into my life pretty young and he was always a professional mechanic and he was into motorcycles and dirt bikes and all this kind of stuff. So I learned a lot from him and my uncles too. Um, my mom's brothers were, you know, um, just always wrenching on stuff. So I would be able to take apart a lawnmower engine uh, and put it back together or, you know, like they would just set me up with stuff that, you know, I would even go around and, and, and trash pick lawn equipment. Me and my buddy, uh, Pete, this kid, Pete Brown, man, when we grew up, uh, we went to the same elementary and middle school and, and we were, I don't know, we spent a lot of time, I guess, when we were maybe 11 or 12, just riding our bicycles around the neighborhood, trash picking stuff, you know, like lawnmowers and weed whackers and all that kind of stuff, mopeds and mini bikes. This and is such an it. 80s story. I want you oh, to dude, that. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely dating myself now. We didn't fool around. We had Nintendo, but that wasn't as fun as getting something running that didn't run, you know? So we would go back to his place and just monkey with that stuff that we found in the trash and get it going. And then what was crazy is that we would take these lawnmowers and weed whackers out of the trash and get them running. And then we would go cut people's grass and make money, yeah. you know? So we were literally, like, making money from out of trash you know so yeah. we had a little circuit of lawns that we would do and and then come winter time we would fix up snow blowers and do people's sidewalks and uh shovel their walks and stuff like that and i don't know i think that was a motivator to to just continue to learn how to wrench on stuff um but yeah for for new riders that that didn't have that exposure as kids you know get yourself a service manual for your bike you know like um they're super easy to attain, especially with the internet now. Yeah. Um, get yourself that service manual and go through it. And, and I find that stuff super interesting. Like anytime I get a new older vehicle or a new vehicle, I get the service manual and I'll just sit there 
and just read through it for weeks, you know, and just look at all how the different systems are designed. The thing is, it's like, once you understand how a four cycle engine works or how a two cycle engine works, it's the same, man, no matter what, you know, even, even vintage stuff all the way up to modern stuff. It's all the same stuff inside. There's a crank, there's a rod, there's pistons, there's valves or not valves, you know, <laughs> reed valves or whatever. Um, you know, like once you understand how all that stuff works, like you can work on anything. So you just have to get your head around, is this a four stroke? Cool. Is this a two stroke? Cool. Okay. I understand it. It's got more than one cylinder. Okay. Well, you just do the same thing a couple more times or whatever. Uh, and then you start understanding charging systems. Um, you start understanding ignition systems and, and uh, it's all these different little independent systems that are working together. So I think what, what new folks get themselves into is, is they look at a machine, they look at a motorcycle or whatever, and they're like, oh my God, how would I ever fool with that thing? It looks so complicated. But it's like, well, just look at the front brake. You know, it's very, very simple. There's a lever that pushes a piston that pushes the juice down the line, that pushes the piston, that pushes the pad into the road. You know, like, it's just like, don't look at the whole thing. Just look at the little thing you're having a problem with, or the little thing you want to look at. And, and just know that all these systems are happily working together, hopefully happily working together. Um, but, but yeah, I think just do it and just get into it. You know, like, don't be afraid. Um, if you mess it up, there's somebody else out there that's going to be able to help you out. Um, I recently had a friend, uh, who I changed his tires. He brought me his wheels to have, have me change his tires. And then when he went to put the front axle back in his bike, he cross-threaded it and, and messed up his fork. So I, you know, I asked him, I said, all right, well, measure the axle and tell me what the size of the, uh, the diameter is and the thread pitch. And he measured it, you know, a nice metric measurement. I was like, I don't have that tap, but now you know which tap to get off of, you know, the hardware store website or whatever, and you can do it yourself. It's not a big deal. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's those mistakes that make you learn. You know, I, I remember a very, very vivid day when I was working up, I used to work at Classic Cycles uh, up in, in Jersey that used to, uh, they still do. My buddy Dave runs that shop. It started out as a BSA dealership in 1965 and it can, he continued on and he still works on vintage British bikes. Um, so I, I learned a ton from Dave. Uh, but there was one day I was uh, working on the clutch of this old BSA. So with a lot of those early bikes, they have a primary chain. So there's the, the crank in the front that has a chain that goes around that and it goes around the clutch. So the bike will have two chains. So there's one in the front and then the, your final drive chain. So we were rebuilding the clutch and to do all that, you have to take the entire like charging system out and all this yeah. crap, you know, like it, it's, it's kind that of sounds, a bear. Uh, sounds British. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very British scenario. <laughs> Everything is Whitworth and the electricity runs backwards and you have to drink tea while you're working on it the whole time. And even uh, if you fix it right, it still doesn't run right. Yeah, it's, it'll, it, it, it only runs when it's cold and raining out. It's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm full with this BSA trying to get it together. And Dave said, hey, man, the guy's, the guy's on his way. You know, will that bike be ready in an hour? I got to have it ready for this dude. I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, and I was jamming, I'm putting everything back together and I get the primary chain on and all this and I get the clutch all, you know, together. And I, I load the clutch up. Now, when you, when you put a clutch on, you, you, you put it on empty, the basket is empty and then you put the plate in 
alternating friction and steels, which is the same, you know, you're looking at 1960s technology. It's the same shit now in your brand new motorcycle, you know, friction, steel, friction, steel, all the way until it's full. And then you put the pressure plate on. So I go to put the pressure plate on this PSA and I realized that I forgot to put the damn studs in from the back of the clutch. So there's no way to put the pressure plate springs and nuts on to hold the clutch together without the studs being in there. So then I had to scramble and take everything back off so I could put the, the studs back in the clutch. So Dave comes back when I was starting to pull the clutch back off now 20 minutes before the customer is going to show up. He's like, what the hell are you doing, man? I just saw you were almost ready to button that job up and now you're taking it back apart. And I said, I forgot to put the damn studs in the clutch. And he said, well, that's the last time you'll ever do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was a very, very teaching moment. And then I got everything together. I got the bike running good and everything was fine. No leaks. Clutch worked great. The guy showed up. He was super stoked and everything. But man, that was like a turning point. You know, for me, it was just like, take your time, put stuff together, pay attention, you know, look at the pictures, all that kind of stuff, because you can get complacent. I think, you know, some mechanics, um, you know, they take it for granted that they've been doing stuff for a long time and, and it, it could be easy to miss something, something like that, that might cause the bike to leak or not run well or whatever. But yeah, so, um, so that was wrenching on bikes. If you're a new rider learning to wrench on bikes, what was the other part of your question? <laughs> well, ultimately it was like, why? Like, uh, Oh, why would you yeah, wrench on your like, bike? Certainly there are people out there. I mean, I'm probably not going to roof this house again. I could, if mm -hmm. I live here until I die, I'm probably not going to roof this yeah, house yeah. again. The experience Just was that the bad that it was like, <laughs> it was that rewarding. And I definitely know it's too steep. I'm not doing it again. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to bikes, you know, there's going to be guys that are that way or girls that are that way. But at some point it's yeah. like, I kind of want to get into wrenching, but I don't want to, or, yeah. uh, maybe you should consider that. And I think of a million reasons why that, but what do you think? What, why? Because to me, you're kind of a gearhead. So it's like, yeah. Why, why should somebody yeah, get into this? It's multifaceted. You know, for me, you know, when I first started driving, you know, like I could only afford like a turd car. Like my first, my first car was an 82 Econoline short bus. It was like an old retired school bus that had like 80 million miles on it and everything was falling apart. There was, the funny thing was that the flywheel was actually missing some teeth so that at certain points where the van would shut off, the starter would align with the part of the flywheel that didn't have teeth and it would just go bling. And then you'd have to go under the hood and turn the fan and get the teeth to line up with the starter. And hopefully it would start. So, you know, I wanted to go pick up my girlfriend when I was in 17 in my crappy old school bus, you know, so I had to make sure my shit ran. I had to make sure that, that it worked. So, I, I remember pulling the transmission out of a school bus and putting it on my skateboard and rolling it out from underneath the school bus and um, replacing the flywheel from one that I pulled out of the junkyard. And, and there was an issue with the brakes. And, uh, I, you know, my stepdad showed me all about how to do drum brakes and how a million different springs and cables go all over the place for the emergency brake and stuff. And, and you know, it, it was more out of necessity for anything, you know, out of anything else in the beginning. It, it was just like, I can only afford a piece of crap. I can't afford to pay somebody to do it. I have to, I have to fix it. I have to get to work. I have to pick up my girlfriend. I have to get to school. You know, like it was just like, just do it, man. You know, it doesn't matter how late I'm out here laying under this thing and how many mosquito bites I'm getting or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, but I really started to enjoy it because it was kind of like, oh, well, nothing can stop me now. You know what I mean? Like I can conquer this turd vehicle 
you know, now I could get an, a cooler turd vehicle, you know, let me, let me get something <laughs> older, you know, let me get a classic. Um, I drove a 65 Chrysler for 10 years as my daily driver. Um, it was a low rider Newport, 18 foot long C-body Chrysler, um, big 383 and a 727 trans, like a, just a big barge. Um, but I would drive that thing to California. Like I, I would drive it out to the shore on the weekends. I would sleep in the back because the back seat was as big as a couch, um, had a huge trunk, you know, like, and it was just like, man, once I learned how to work on stuff, I'm like, oh, like now I can have cool stuff. You know, like yeah. now I can get like now I could look at old motorcycles and old cars and like I don't have to worry about it breaking down. They're they're really simple. And again, it's it's all the same stuff, just in a different package. You know, if you work on a Chrysler, you, you know how to work on a Ford, you know how to work on Chevy, whatever. Um, and again, I have all the books for that kind of stuff. There are all that information's out there. So to me, it, it, it initially was out of necessity. And then it was just so rewarding it was so pleasurable to be able to say like yeah dude i could drive i could drive a 60 year old car every day who cares you know like i had a 56 buick for a while that my wife and i drove all the way down to north carolina you know and and it was all an original very original car it was never restored you know i fixed the brakes up and the cooling system and stuff and and i just never would hesitate that's why i i don't really hesitate to ride any of my old, old bikes anywhere because it's like I got to the point with my mechanical ability um, to, to be pretty prepared for whatever could possibly fail. And you know what? In those instances where something failed and I couldn't fix it, you know, something was just so roached that I, there was no way to fix it. Look, I made it home. I'm not still on the side of the road. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you don't just like turn to a skeleton on the side of the road and have buzzards eating your eyeballs. You know, you, you figure it out. You call a truck, you call your buddy. You get a ride to your pickup truck and, you, you know, like you figure it out. Like it's not, you don't just, just die on the side of the road. Like people think like, oh my God, how would you ride an old motorcycle anywhere? Aren't you afraid? It's like, yeah. no, we live in the United States. It's not like, you know, somebody's going to see me on the side of the road and just steal me. <laughs> maybe, maybe they will now. I don't know. <laughs> that was a, a huge change. Uh, I actually met Lemmy up in Lima for a chopper ride. Uh, run, yeah, run for cool. your life. I don't know if you did that with them ever or anything. Um, no, I know that run though. Yeah, it's man, it was talk about being a fish out of water as a relatively <laughs> new rider on a modern bike, and I'm always like scheduling everything and where all the gas stops were. Like this yeah. is a completely like, yeah. and it's the same thing. Like I'm in the event and I feel weird, and days go by and I realize I had a great time. Oh, dude, I, absolutely. I, it never lived that world where, you know, bikes just break down on the side of the road in the first 10 miles and, and everybody's cool with it. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, it forces you to chill out. Right. It forces you to chill out, man. You know, and, and I think like we did the, let me used to say he didn't believe that bikes had soul and he thought that was all bullshit or whatever. And, and I'm like, man, it's, it's not really like literally the machine having a soul. It's just like your relationship with the machine that, that puts you on its schedule, mm -hmm. you know, like, and a lot of people could see that as it being a pain in the ass or whatever, but like, man, you know, like having an intimate relationship with the vehicle that, you know, your kind of, your life depends on as you're riding it down the road. Um, it's really rewarding. It's a really like reciprocal relationship where it's like you put the time and love into the machine and then it takes care of you and it starts easy and it'll take you where you need to go. And it'll, 
it'll stop and, and turn and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and it's like, I don't, I was never really great in school. You know, I just kind of barely got by in school because it was just not that interesting to me other than my metal shop, auto shop, <laughs> right. all that kind of stuff. I, I crushed all that. I was like aces and all that stuff. But I, I didn't really care for all the regular stuff. And, and I wasn't really into organized sports, so I never really got any kind of reward out of, out of doing that. But when it, when it came to the vehicles, it was like, man, you know, if, if I can figure this machine out and, and make it run well and make it reliable, it's going to serve me, you know, just, just as good. It's going to treat me just as good as I'm treating it. And, and, and I just found that so rewarding to have like this weird relationship with these machines. Um, and, and, and especially because they just have so much character, you know, and, and people talk about character and soul. It's just like a machine being a pain in the ass. And I guess that's part of it. You know what I mean? But there's something about like a lot of the time I would have, I would have old Harleys come through my shop, um, you know, that were kickstart only. And, you know, these were big ass engines, you know, like you could look at an 80 inch, uh, uh, Evo or something like that, or, or, you know, something like a shovel head. Um, and to figure out the starting process for a big twin Harley that's only kickstart and has a carburetor and a magneto, you know, it doesn't even have a battery. You know, and you got to kick it to generate the electricity to light the spark plugs off. And you have to have primed the carburetor properly to have just enough fuel in the intake, you know, so that it fires off when you want it to. And, and there's this weird dance where it's like key off, couple prime kicks, two twists of the throttle, key on, big kick. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so it's like, it's this crazy thing just to get it to turn on, you know, and, and what other thing can you use or what other vehicle that you know of is so rewarding just to get it to turn off, <laughs> let alone go down the road and make a great sound and actually make some good power. Like, you know, that's, that's something that's really cool about the, the, those old choppers. You know, you're looking at a bike that easily makes 60 horsepower that, that is 100, 150 pounds less than it did when, when it was new. You know, that's the dictionary definition of a hot rod. When you look at a Deuce Roadster with a big V8 in it, you know, you're taking the biggest motor you could, you could find and put it in the smallest, lightest chassis that you could find. And man, that is a hoot. That's a hell of a good time. So, you know, a lot of folks who are not really into choppers look at them and they're like, oh, you know, what the hell? That's so dumb. Why would you take the suspension off and, you know, ride a long front end? Or why would you put a gas tank on and only holds a gallon? Like that shit's all dumb. But that is the dictionary de definition of an American hot rod, you know, like that it's it's a really rad feeling you know it, i did this uh i did this job uh, for a customer who had this panhead chopper that he had built when he was in his 20s in the 70s you know this dude was a vietnam vet uh you know he's a really really interesting guy and uh he when he opened his own business he had sold the chopper uh, to a friend and then that that bike got parted out so it kind of vanished so when I was running my own business, he had uh, his friends kind of get together and find all the parts to this old panhead chopper. And, and he bought everything back and he rebuilt the bike the same as he did 40 years ago. Wow. You know? And I, I got to be a part of that project. And, and man, I worked my ass off all day here in, in my shop and just, you know, it was like a thousand degrees in the shop all day. And, and, and he called me, he said, Hey man, you know, like I had built some controls for him. I did some work on the transmission. I, I did, I did some, you know, considerable amount of work to the bike, you know, stuff that he didn't do, 
I stepped in and helped and he wanted me to come down to help him wire it up, which is just a few wires on those old bikes. There's not much to it. And, and I rode down to his place and man, we crawled on the ground. I think I had worked. I was at 16 hours of work for that day or something. I was just, I couldn't even see straight. I'm wiring this bike up and, and he rolled it out into the driveway once we got it all ready, man. And he, he timed the magneto and did his, you know, prime, you know, prime carburetor, got his uh, kicker up on compression and lit this bike off. It might've been two or three in the morning and lit this bike off for the first time. I kind of get it worked up thinking about it cause I was there, yeah. but you know, he fired this bike up and it was like, he did the same when he was like 20 years old, yeah. you know, like this dude was just like, dude, it was heavy. It was a, it was a heavy experience. And it, and he let me ride this bike around. And it was the first time I rode a bike that had a, a jockey shift on it. Mm which is bananas. You know, when you, when you think about, they, they call it a suicide clutch. So basically old Harleys used to have like a rocker clutch, just kind of like a, like a lawn tractor where, you know, toe to go, you push the, uh, the clutch pedal forward and then it'll, you know, the clutch plates engage and the bike will go forward and you, uh, you turn the heel back and then it'll disengage it. But what they used to do back in the day to make the shifting a lot faster, when you took the tank shift off those bikes, you would put a, a short jockey shift right on the transmission. So that was behind your butt. And then your foot clutch had a spring on it. And that was, uh, you know, like, a, like a car clutch. So I'm riding this dude's chopper that, that he's had in his, his entire life, you know, for the first time. And I'd never ridden that kind of clutch suicide clutch setup before. And I'm like, dude, if I bang this bike up, this guy's going to stab me in the throat. Like there's no doubt this dude is going to bury me in the forest. So the pressure was on, you know, thinking about riding this old Panhead chopper. And of course, you know, the first time I go ride it, the first car I pull up behind it, a stoplight is this cop. And I'm thinking like, great, I'm going to rear end this cop on this dude's old chopper and just get, it's going to be the worst experience ever. Um, but man, you know, I, I wouldn't trade that day for a million bucks. You know, I, I don't know how many hours I worked that day and how exhausted I was that day, but helping this dude get this old pan chopper together and, and seeing him fired up and then getting to ride the thing was just the coolest damn thing you could ever imagine. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I, I just think that, you know, it, it's just that it, it, it's kind of like once you get your hands in a machine and, uh, and you put the work in and, and you start to reap the rewards of your work and you even just polishing the damn paint on something. You know yeah. what I mean? You get a nice buffing compound or something like that, or you use some chrome polish on an old beat up fender and, uh, and you're like, damn, that looks pretty good. Like over the whole quarantine thing, I've been polishing up my old 70 Yamaha, um, which is, was really pretty good original shape, but like the forks and the brakes and stuff were, were kind of corroded and looking crappy. So I just polished those up and the bike looks like a thousand percent better, yeah. you know, and it costs zero dollars and I maybe spent an hour, you know, and, and that, that to me just makes me enjoy the bike that much more. You know? it, you're, you're dead on about that. I love, I love when, uh, let, me, let me pen that article about what is it, anamorphosizing your bike or whatever. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And I, I'm so guilty, right? Like my, my yeah. scrambler and I are this weird, like she's, yeah. my, she's my mistress, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, man. And it, yeah, like that's the other thing. It doesn't have to be an old bike. It doesn't have to be anything that's super worn out. It can, it can totally be a modern machine. I feel that way about my tiger, you know, that thing carried me and my wife all the way across Canada and back across the country, you know, and didn't skip a beat the whole time. And, 
And I've done two really cool, cool trips with my buddy Peter from work. Uh, we did the BDR twice with it. We're going to do another one this season. And, and like, that's just it. It's like the time you spend with it and the uh, trips that you put into, into the machine and all those memories you get out of it. You know, like, I think that's how you build that relationship. I honestly think that Lemmy's full of shit and that he honestly does believe in all this stuff, but he just likes to argue so much. He just pretends that uh, he doesn't, he doesn't believe in any of that. So where, where did you stand on modern off-road racing versus vintage? Did you start vintage first or did you start modern first or is it just kind of both? Yeah, I started with the vintage racing first because I had built that 72 Triumph just because I already had a chopper. I had already built a few Triumph choppers and I was like, oh, I'll build this one into like a desert sled, you know, like pretty, pretty easy build that looks pretty bitching, you know, and of course I wanted it to be functional. So I built that bike up like kind of on the side in my free time. And uh, I started taking it out with my friends who had modern bikes and I would ride in the pines with them. And, and I was hanging with them pretty, pretty good. Like the bike was, was really surprisingly capable and it was reliable. And I'm like, well, shit, this thing is even better than I expected it to be, you know? And, and I made a lot of modifications to make it tougher so it can handle crashes more and jumps. And, and I, I uh, put really good suspension on it you know, that kind of stuff. So it got to the point where, you know, my buddies who were on modern bikes were kind of like, okay, man, you know, like maybe get a normal bike so you could ride with us. And I'm like, yeah, maybe in a little while. So I started looking at ways I could race this bike to, to, to ride with other folks aggressively on similar machines. So I found Arma which is the American Historic Racing Motorcycle Association. And uh, I reached out to the, to the regional rep guy, this guy, Dave Cutskill, who puts on the Mid-Atlantic Series. And I said, hey, man, I, I built up this old Triumph twin, and uh, I've been riding into the woods. Like, can I come race with you guys? And he's like, yeah, dude, sick. Just bring it out. You know, we'll, we got a class for every kind of old bike, you know, and, and basically, their cross-country series is a hair scramble series. So um, how that works for folks who are not familiar with, with hair scrambles, basically, you know, you're looking at a four or five-mile course uh, through the woods, and you're going to be racing that course for about an hour. So it's an hour plus a lap on the leader. That's the technical rules. Um, so you end up doing about four laps or so. You know, the courses are usually really tight, single track, some hill climbs, some mud, some sand, maybe some grass track, sometimes some vintage motocross track where you have to hit a double or a, a, not really a big double, but maybe there'll be a tabletop here or there. Um, but so I started racing with these folks, you know, and, and it, it, it just leveled up the experience. You know, it really, um, you know, riding the bike that I had built rebuilt from the frame up and built the engine and built the wheels and all that kind of stuff and, and with my friends was great you know and, and it proved itself to be really reliable and then when i started um running the bike in the races it was just like man i'm throwing this thing in my truck and i'm driving five hours you know like now the stakes are really high for this thing to be reliable because i sure as shit don't want to spend all weekend driving and have the thing take a take a dump in the woods you know so um, I got out there and I started racing the classic class, which is basically, in, uh, the cross country series uses the same armor rules as vintage motocross, uh, except that motocross calls that class, uh, sportsman open twin, which is two cylinder bikes, Triumphs, BSAs, Nortons, you know, big 
street bikes that have been converted for dirt use. Um, so like a Rickman Matisse type deal, like some of the stuff you used to see about Eakins and McQueen race, like that would be the class of bikes um, that would be racing. But as far as cross country goes, that's not the right tool for the job. The bike is 150 pounds heavier than any other bike at the race. And it has like 10 times as much horsepower, which you don't need when you're riding really tight, muddy single track. So, you know, basically it's like, uh, I don't know, like to me, I always thought it was like driving in a finishing nail with a sledgehammer. Like it's just like, all right, we're going to get the job done, but it ain't going to be pretty. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, man, when I, when I started racing that bike, I really, really had a good time. Now that generally there wasn't anyone else in my class. So I kept getting first places, but initially I was pretty bummed about that. I felt that it was lame that I was getting first place and not racing against anybody. And then I started to think, well, shit, you know what? I built this bike and I'm taking it here and it's surviving and I'm putting up some pretty good times and I'm getting middle to upper middle overall finishes on a bike that used to be a street bike against all these other real dirt bikes. So then I was kind of like, all right, dude, yeah, like I'm earning these, like that's cool. And then uh, I met this dude, Jeff, um, uh, you know, and he was also into old triumphs. I actually met him at a backyard flat track day that we were doing at a, at a mutual friend's house. And he had brought uh, a B50 MX. It's a single cylinder BSA uh, 500, uh, which was an, initially a dirt bike. That was one of BSA's dirt bikes back in the 60s. And, um, and he was kicking my ass on this thing around the flat track because it just, it hooked up so well. Being a single, it hooked up much better than the twin. The twin was so much heavier and put down so much more power. It just, the back end wanted to hang out all the time. So for the little track they were riding on, he was just kicking my ass. So we got to be buddies because we were both super into British bikes. And, and he saw my bike and he said, man, I'm going to build up one of those. That's cool. So he built up a 750 Triumph. Um, and he came and started racing with me. And he was like, what are we doing? Like, <laughs> it's just like really kicking his ass, you know. And more, you know, more so with the vintage racing, it was, it was just being a good mechanic and getting the thing to survive was, was half of the battle. Um, but so yeah, I raced for about three years, uh, in vintage racing before I got my KTM. And then when I got my KTM, I was like, okay, cool. Well, let me try a modern hair scramble and, and see what it's all about. So, um, I signed up and I showed up and it was way more serious and way bigger than, than the armor race. You know, I went from a row of like 15 guys to a row of like 50 guys, you know, and the trail is just as skinny at the end of that, that starting area. You know, you're battling 50 guys for the whole shot versus just a couple guys, you know, and, and it gets pretty serious. There's a lot of elbows and handlebars going all over the place and, and you get roosted in the face. And, but I love it, man. You know, like that dead engine start, you know, you're sitting there, your heart's pounding and, and the dude, you know, drops the flag and man, like there, there's nothing else like that. Like there's, you can't think of anything else going on on the planet except for when you're, you know, you're sitting there on that starting line and trying to get the whole shot. I got my first whole shot ever at the uh, most recent Arma National that I did on the MX-175. So I was able to pull the whole shot off on the vintage bike, but there's too many dudes to compete against with a modern bike. Um, 
That was the but, briefing yeah. at the last race, actually. It's the the race is not won in this corner, so the yeah. weather sucks. Be careful. Yeah, just sit in. Just sit in. Just try not to. The best I adv advice I ever got was at an armor race where a buddy of mine said, the whole trick to this man is don't stall, don't fall. You know, take it easy. It's just a ride. You know, don't try to kill yourself because if you crash once, you're automatically slower than the guy who, who, who was just putting around the course. You know, like you got to pick the thing up and start it and put your levers all back to where they're supposed to be and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I was racing vintage for a few years before the modern bike. And then I did the hair scramble on the, the modern KTM and, and it was very similar, you know, like nearly identical experience, except for we were going faster. I had better brakes and suspension and there was a lot more people at the race against. Uh, but very similar course, like the Arma, the Arma hair scrambles courses aren't, aren't easy by any means. The ones that, the one that I just did on Sunday was, was absolutely bananas. It, it would have been tough on a modern bike, to be honest. Uh, but you know, the, the thing that I really, really enjoy, uh, competition wise on the modern bike is the, there's a relatively new format of Enduros called restarts. I don't know if you mess with any restart Enduros yet. Uh -huh. Tell me more. So. Uh, with a traditional timekeeper enduro, you know, you do have to keep time. So you have, you have a watch, you got to stay on your minute. Uh, there's checks, there's secret checks. You have to show up on time. If you get there early, you get double points. There's a lot going on there. Now with the restart format, it's essentially a transfer stage and then a time stage and then a transfer stage and a time stage. So basically, you know, you, you still have your roll chart. You still start on your row based on, you know, you, you set your clock to your minute based on your row and all that. Um, but it takes all of that, oh, I went too fast or, you know, oh, I, I came in too slow here. Basically, you're just riding a section to get to the start of a time section and then you're going as fast as you possibly can. And then you try to get your best time there and then there'll be a transfer stage to the next one and so on and so forth. So. Um, it takes all of that like math and craziness out, out of it. I know, you know, I do see the appeal of that. That adds definitely another layer of, of uh, challenge to, to the competition when you do a, a regular timed enduro. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how to operate the motorcycle. So I don't know if I want to have to get into all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's neat. Once you figure it out, it is really neat how it works. I did a couple, um, traditional uh, timed enduros recently and then but I, I really have the best time doing those restarts so you know my preference right now as far as competing off-road is to do the hair scrambles on the vintage bike because it's like a tighter crew and the bikes are a little bit more diverse and and the courses are plenty challenging and then do the enduros on the modern bike because I'd much rather spend an hour or so on the old bike with four inches of travel and then spend all day on the modern bike that has a foot of suspension travel. So <laughs> that's kind of where I'm at with that. It's really neat uh, perspective. Um, I, I've discovered in doing the hair scrambles that I don't like the wide open stuff. I don't have yeah. the guts to really get on the bike and make up oh, time dude. in these open sections, but when it gets stupid and it, you know, really deep mud, rocks, creeks and stuff like that, when a lot of the younger guys struggle, I'm very confident and I'm good in those sections. So I'm like, I need to get my skill level up so where I can yeah. start trying some of the enduro stuff where, you know, the logs are getting bigger, the rocks are going to be bigger. So 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's honestly, that's what's so fun about it because you feel like you're learning every time you go out. You know, you continue to push yourself and, and you'll be a little bit more comfortable in a corner or in a downhill or in sand and mud and all that kind of stuff. And, and even just fun Sunday rides that I go out with my buds around here, I'm like, at the end of doing 30 or 40 miles with them on a Sunday, I'm like, hell yeah. You know, I, I rode in third gear in that whole section where I would only usually do second. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and we're all pushing each other and, and we, could, we could see each other trying out new suspension settings and trying different braking techniques and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's been really cool, man. I, I just live for those Sunday rides at this point, whether it's a race or just a fun ride, man. That's like pretty much all I think about. So you just have the Tiger, the Vintage Triumph, and the KTM. Those are the three bikes in the stable right now? Uh, I have the 74 MX-175. I have the 70 Yamaha R5. I have uh, my 70 Triumph TR6. I have a 68 Triumph T120. I have the Tiger 800 XC. I have the KTM 250 XCW. Uh, then I have my weird old purple mini bike, I guess that counts as a motorcycle. Uh, but yeah, I guess I have like six or seven bikes. Sure. I was curious because you were talking about the 2012 Tiger and uh, I think it's tough to beat that. Like I, I listened to a podcast recently about peak bike and uh, that Tiger. I mean, I almost bought a Tiger and not the Scrambler. I fought with that yeah. for a long time. Um, so I guess in this world, I'm just kind of curious, like, are you at the point where you're happy with where things are? Or do you see some of these modern bikes come out like the T7 and things like that, that you that kind of make you wonder, are you uh, are you looking to change things up anytime soon? Yeah. So. I am very lucky in my position at work that I do get to ride these new bikes, you know, so it might be a little bit harder for other folks to have access to these machines to ride. Thankfully, you know, Spurgeon over the years and Revzilla just as a whole has built these relationships. Like it, it took a lot of work for them to initially get access to these machines because, you know, we're just an online retail store and, and I think we're only 12 years old at this point. Um, you know, so I, I got to give props to, um, one, my dog squeaky toy and also to, um, you know, the groundwork that the dudes put in to get to this, to this level where we, we do have access to an Africa to N and, and, you know, we had a CRF 250L, uh, we have a CRF 450L, we have the new T7 in house, you know, like, uh, we've had various triumphs come through, like, you know, it, it, it's killer, you know, and, and I know it takes a lot of work to build up those relationships to the point where, you know, like it all comes down to, to you know, I don't want to puff them up too much, you know, but, <laughs> you know, the, the Spurs definitely has put a lot of work into bike reviews and stuff like that. And the quality of, of the work that he's produced has really allowed us to, to, to be able to get our hands on these machines. So with that, um, usually I'm happy enough just trying them out. You know, and, and I haven't really, I haven't ridden anything that lit my fire enough to want to take out a loan, you know, and, and buy another motorcycle. Um, there's so many old bikes that I really like that are super duper cheap. I'd really like to have another old classic car again at some point soon, you know. And, and if you have six or seven grand in your pocket, you could buy thousands of classic motorcycles and cars, like any different kind that you want that run pretty good, 
you know, that there's still tons of parts for, you know. And then if I look at the price of a new motorcycle, especially, you know, all right, well, the T7 is, is an awesome bike for 10 grand, still 10 grand, you know. I could get like two like 50s Lincolns for that much. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if I'm looking at for a vehicle, uh, pound, pound per dollar, you know what I mean? There's, there's definitely better deals to be had out there. For six uh, grand, you could bring home a KLR and a Bonneville 865. Like that, uh, <laughs> that's possible. Yeah, yeah. If you have a garage, if you have the space to put these machines, you know, you, you could really kind of diversify your investments. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that the bikes aren't worth it, you know, and, and, and I, the, the uh, FTR was really killer. I, I really fell in love with that bike when I rode it. I thought it was a beautiful bike. Um, there was definitely some fueling issues that were turning me off a little bit. Like the motor was fantastic. The chassis was fantastic, but there was just the fueling was so off on it that I'm like, man, I wish I could just throw some carburetors on this thing and I could really get it to run well. Um, but I think they're working that out now. There, there's going to be some tuners coming out for that bike so they can correct that stuff. Um, you know, but uh, honestly, the the bike that, that really got me the most stoked that I rode recently was that Speed Twin. You know, mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be the Scrambler. I thought it was going to be the modern Scrambler. But when I started riding that Street Twin, it just had that brawler in a tuxedo vibe. You know what I mean? Like when you think of like a bare-knuckle boxer that's dressed up to go to, to a formal event. That's, that's what I thought that bike was to me. You know, like I just had a blast. That motor, that 1200 motor is so killer. And with the 17 inch wheels on that thing and the pegs are just set back a little bit. And uh, dude, it just sounds cool. It looks cool. It rips. The brakes are insane. Like, and it just looks like a modern classic bike, you know, like that, that was really, really a good time. Like that, that was a bike that I thought about a lot after I got off of it. And I was surprised that I honestly liked that a little bit more than the FTR. Um, you know, after all the hype, you know, and the Indian logo and all that kind of stuff, you know, there's some history there that, that, that I thought was cool. And there's a lot of fit and finish detail stuff on the Indian that I thought really stood out, um, you know, that, that was built really nicely. But I am a Triumph guy, of course. I, I really dig the history of that kind of stuff. But man, that, that Street Twin is just, or the new Speed Twin is just such a killer, killer machine. It's, it's funny you said that. I haven't ridden it yet, so I need to be careful when I do, because that's the way I feel about the Mag Wheel 865, Bonnie. That that's yeah. a, it's a sleeper bike. That ah, it's just yeah. a modern classic. Like, that bike rips if you know yeah. what you're doing. Right, right. So yeah, no, it's really fun. I mean, that that's just it. You know, it's just kind of that that unsuspecting bike. You know, it's like all right, well. Of course, if you get on an R1, like it's supposed to blow your mind because it's like a thoroughbred race bike, basically with turn signals, you know. But when you look at a modern classic bike that is making a shitload of power and has real wheel sizes for real sport bike tires and has real brakes and real suspension, you know, that you would find on a sport bike, but it's kind of like dressing up in its grandpa's clothes, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I, I just, I like a bike that you could really rip on and it, it's not too squirrely, but that you could also ride for fun and just cruise on and it's mellow. Like it, I like that Jekyll and Hyde aspect of it because, you know, I've ridden other bikes. Like we have an R6 at work that's beautiful and killer and perfect in every way, but I, I don't want to ride it around on the street in Philadelphia. It seems dumb. 
it doesn't even start to become fun until you're going uh, 90 miles an hour in first gear. You know, like it's, it starts to come alive at like eight grand, you know, when, when most of my other bikes would have already exploded. Um, you know, but I, I appreciate, I, I love looking at sport bikes. I think, you know, when I look at a sport bike and I see like all of the technology and the aerodynamics and the fairings and the paint and the, and how it's all put together and how, like, how is this bike only 12 grand or something like that? You know what I mean? Like, how is it possible that this thing is just so state of the art and can go so fast, but it's so damn cheap, you know, like, it seems like those bikes should be so much more expensive than they are. At least the Japanese ones, you know, obviously the Italian ones are, are <laughs> to get up there in price, but you know, I just think there's something to be said about every, like, I'm the only guy at work who takes our Intruder 800 for a ride, you know, because I see the beauty in that goofy thing, you know, and I think that that bike rips for what it is, you know, but I'm just a goober and I really like all motorcycles like a ton, you know. I mean, it's a blessing, really. I've, I've <laughs> discovered that now. It's when, you, when you get in a niche, it controls uh, who you get to ride with and where you can go. And in my case, here in the Midwest, it's like, dude, I got to burn about an hour to get to any curves that are worth talking about, like easily. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I got to burn almost two hours to go to any dirt worth talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, yeah. So, being that's able part to of it. it that's part of motorcycle riding that, that folks don't tell you is there there's a lot of like um traveling to good stuff <laughs> yeah that's absolutely the case um so it's funny because you and i are on the same page here about about two strokes but i feel like in my circle i'm the minority but you bought a two-stroke is that the same way for you that it is for me yeah yeah <laughs> i'm definitely in the minority spurgeon hates two strokes and I'm like, you can't even be friends, dude. You're totally weird. What are you talking about? How could you hit a two-stroke? That's so funny. <laughs> I power twice as often as your bike. <laughs> so did you, you had a two-stroke. Well, you'd obviously, I'm assuming you've had other two-strokes before the KTM. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's another one of those things where, like, the simplicity turns me on. Yes. You know, it's like. There's no valves, there's no cams, there's no push rods, there's no cam chain, there's none of that. And it rips. Like yeah. it literally just like dumps oil from the fuel around the crank. You know, it uses the crankcase, you know, to, to mix the air and fuel and get it up. Like you look at how a two-stroke works compared to a four-stroke and you're like, well, how does it even go? Like, it's like so crazy that it's even a thing. Like the exhaust pipe is such, a, such an integral part of making it work you know it's it, it's just awesome like it's that whole mechanical aspect of it is it's so simple but as far as like riding it goes i i've ridden some you know i had obviously when i was a little kid i had that rm80 very very peaky pipey two-stroke a six-speed twin shock steel tank bike with terrible brakes for a kid that i swear it went like a 1000 miles an hour the bike was so ridiculously fast um I was terrified of it, but I couldn't ever stop thinking about it. All I wanted to do was ride it, but I was terrified of it. And uh, my cousin at that point had an XR80, which was the total opposite end. It was super quiet. You could kickstart it with your hand. Uh, the clutch, the brakes, everything worked so good. It was like, um, it was really, really mellow. And as much as I liked riding the XR, it didn't scare me enough. You know, like I loved how gnarly the, the RM was like that something about the blue smoke, you know, got embedded in my brain when I was like, I don't know, 10 years old or something. And, and that was, that was it since. So 
oddly enough, the two stroke that I had after that bike was actually a street bike because mm -hmm. I used to have a 71 Yamaha R5. So the R5, um, the five stands for five piston port motor. It's before the RD, which was a reed valve motor. So uh, 70 to 72 was the R5. So when I was running my cycle shop, I, uh, I used to go on Craigslist and look for bikes to flip. So if there was any dip in business, I had a bike to, to put some time and money into that I could, I could cash out on if, if stuff got light. It never got light. I was slammed all the time. So I picked up this little R5 and, and ironically, I bought it from this dude who had two Harleys. He had an Ironhead Harley, Sportster, and then he had an FLH, a big uh, uh, cone shovelhead FLH. And he says, well, I'm selling these two Harleys too. You want them? And I said, no, I literally have both of those bikes already at my house. I own them and whatever, but I'm really interested in this Yamaha. And he said, yeah, you know, like my dad bought it brand new and then he rode it to work. And then when he bought the Sportster, he parked the Yamaha and he bought the Sportster at like 78. So he had only ridden the Yamaha for eight years and then it sat pretty much the entire time we've been alive. So I went through the thing, you know, and, and again, it's they're super simple. So I rebuilt the carburetors, I cleaned out the gas tank, filed the points, adjusted the timing and stuff, threw some new spark plugs in it. And it started up in a couple kicks, you know, and, and I started riding it around and it was one of the first bikes I ever rode that like literally like made me laugh like a child. Like I was just giggling like crazy because the thing wanted to do a wheelie in every gear, you know, it was just <laughs> so quick and it made such a great sound. And, and it has a twin leading shoe drum on the front. The bike's only like 300 some pounds. It's really pretty light for what it is. And uh, it's really small, like unassuming bike, but it's so fast. So the story with the, the R5 was that it was dubbed the giant killer because that bike was able to crush bikes twice its displacement in a quarter mile back when it was new. So I always thought that was cool, like that David versus Goliath type vibe. Like, yeah. I, I like that underdog thing, you know. And also, it's just a beautiful bike. Like the way they're made, the lines, the way the motor sits, the paint, the pipes. Like it's just a really, really beautifully designed motorcycle. Like whether it was from the 1970s or now, it's just a great looking bike proportionally and everything. So. I rode that for, for a while. I had that bike for a long time. I took it some, on some long trips and I did some work to it to make it look nice and everything. And then, I don't know, I, I needed money for something. I, I don't even remember what it was. So I, I put it up for sale and like sold it like that. And my wife was like, what the hell? Why did you sell that bike? You ride it every day. You love that bike. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I have a lot of bikes. And and then I felt like complete trash. Like I felt terrible about selling that bike. And I had sold it to a girl that worked at Revzola who had since left. And then I was hitting her up. I was like, hey, man, if you want to get rid of that Yamaha, like I'd love to buy it back. I, I regret it. I was dumb. And she's like, nah, I really like it. I'm going to keep it. So I'm like, damn it. So, so that, was, uh, that was my second two-stroke. And then uh, I got my KTM. And I love it. It's awesome, of course. And then I was shopping around for another R5. I was always look like I always shop. I never have money, but I always shop, which is terrible. So I'm looking. Uh, I think it was on Craigslist. I found this R5 on Craigslist in White Plains, which is a pretty far drive from me. And it was in 1970. So 70 was the first year R5, and it was the only year that it came in purple and white. 
and uh, you know, you think about late sixties, early seventies, muscle cars and all that craziness, you know, purple barracudas and lime green chargers and all that crazy colors. Everything was just so wild, you know, like the shaker hoods and just like everything was bananas, you know, and that motorcycle was a perfect representation of that. Like you got a two stroke twin purple tiny motorcycle. That's like a fire breather, you know, like it's just the craziest damn thing. So I, uh, I called the dude up and I was like, there's no way this guy's going to have this bike or there's first I was like, there's no way he's going to answer. And if he answers, he's not going to have it because it had been up for sale for a while. So I call him up, he answers. And I said, Hey, you still got that Yamaha? He's like, yeah, I have it. And, uh, I was like, cool. Are you going to be around this weekend? He's like, yeah, but there's another guy coming. I said, dude, I'm going to be driving like all day to get to your place. Like, I don't want to get halfway there and then find out you don't have it and waste my whole weekend. Like, come on. So he's like, well, the dude's supposed to come on Sunday. So if you come on Saturday, you can buy it out from under him, I guess. So I was like, all right, dude. So I, I go up and I start thinking, all right, I can't fall in love with this thing already. I have to make sure that it's not a turd and all that kind of stuff because I don't want to have to restore, you know, the whole thing. And I go up there and, and, he had just recently bought it from the original owner and the original owner had the service manual that had all a bunch of notes that he had kept in it all these years. And he had extra keys and extra parts and, and, and the bike was in great shape. It ran great and everything and everything was there and I, done deal paid him his asking price and I, I brought it home. And so that was just last, the end of last summer we got it. And then, uh, you know, over the winter and over this lockdown thing, I've been cleaning it up and, and doing some work to it. I just repolished or I re-upholstered the seat because the seat foam was all rotten and gross. So I redid the seat. And uh, again, I polished the brakes and the fork and all that. and just did some tune-up stuff to it. But that's honestly like the go-to bike. Like I grabbed that bike and I just ripped that around. And, and it's, it's so fun. I just, I think it's so pretty and it's so fun to ride. It's really fast. Uh, for what it is, you know what I mean? Obviously it's a 350 CC two stroke twin from 1970. So like, I'm not trying to say that the thing will do the quarter mile in three seconds or anything like that, but um, it definitely holds its own, you know, and it'll go highway speed, no problem. And I get a lot of, a lot of folks, you know, who are, who are really into it. They, they think it's a trip because a lot of folks have seen it. hadn't seen a two stroke street bike ever for one, or they had one when they were young, in the seventies. It's a good conversation starter and it's oil injected too, which is cool. You know, you think about the TPI, you know, it's like, Oh, everything is, it's going to be oil. It's new technology. Yeah. It's like, no, they had that since the fifties. You know what I mean? Like everything old is new again, but the the oil pump on it works great. I reshim the oil pump, you know, the Yama lube oil pump is real. uh, It's a really a stout little piece. It's just that piece alone is really, really neat how it works basically has like a little squirt gun type pump in it and you have to make sure that you adjust the shims so the stroke of the pump is correct so you're you're metering the oil properly to mix it properly which is probably like 32 to 1 or something like that i forget what it says in the book but i make sure that i buy like junk oil junk two-stroke oil for it because it mixes it so heavily you know because i don't know like i run my ktm at 60 to 1 on like synthetic motor x yeah but these old bikes like they just want like chainsaw oil, you know, just mix it heavy, you know, like I could probably run 60 to one premix in, in either of those and they would run just fine. Maybe 50 to one. I do. I do run 50 to one in the MX uh, because air cooled two strokes want a little bit more oil, but 
but it's just super neat how it works, man. So now I guess that bike would be technically the third two stroke that I've owned. Yeah. It's, man, it, I really spend a lot of time answering your questions. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're fine, man. It's that you've covered so much that, uh, that's it. Is that it was the strangest thing that, uh, I started watching like, you know, like, uh, what is it? Wes, uh, what is it? World Enduro Super Series. And, yeah. Yeah. You, know, you see Graham Jarvis videos and whatnot. And I go, I don't think I'll ever get to that level, but I want to do that stuff. And so yeah. these guys are riding two strokes. Why? Yeah. And then my brain just started getting into it. And then I rode one finally and I went, this is the craziest, lightest fire breathing yeah. dragon that I have ever <laughs> been on. How do I get one? Like, Dude, it's so <laughs> awesome. It's so awesome. Now I rode, uh, you know, my buddy Brandon from work, uh, he was in a lot of the other videos. He has a, a 306 days. I think his bike is maybe a 16. Um, and then our other buddy, Phil, that we did the 24 hour Enduro with last year, uh, he's got a 350 four stroke. So thankfully those dudes let me ride those bikes back to back one day in the pines. And I immediately fell in love with the two stroke. Now the 350 is killer. You know, there's no doubt about that. Um, but it has such high compression and the engine braking is so gnarly that I felt like you really, really had to be, you know, in tune with the throttle all the time. Whereas the two stroke to me, like I, I'm a mountain biker first and foremost. I started mountain biking when I was only just 10 years old. You know, I, I started uh, back when I was a kid riding with my dad and I used to work at a bicycle shop. So I had a, a lot of experience with mountain bikes over the years. And when I rode the two stroke, it felt more like my mountain bike than anything. You know, just that freewheeling, you know, just give it a little power, a little power, a little power. And just, you know, like I like the lack of engine braking. I like uh, just how responsive it is as far as acceleration and braking goes. It's just, it just feels so much lighter than a four stroke, just the way it acts. I totally think it's a taste thing. Uh, I think Spurgeon and I talked about this. I know Steve Comrade and I talked about it because they were kind of like, why are you looking at two strokes or whatever? Uh, and it, it's taste like everything else, right? Like, you know, you like choppers because you like to, you know, just enjoy the ride or you like the character or whatever it happens to be. To me, the type of two stroke or type of woods riding I like is like super technical and, you know, rocky and really tight and close. I'm like, man, that two stroke just goes left and right, stop and go just yeah. so fast. So much yeah. less effort. Yeah. yeah. And I think about like the weight distribution too, you know, like, I don't know whether it's real or not, but I think about like, okay, well, a four stroke has a lot of mechanical stuff up on top of the engine to make it work. Where basically the head on a two stroke is a lid. There's <laughs> like, you know, there's nothing to it there. So, um, you know, I, I think that, that that to me, like when I start thinking about weight distribution and, and, and just moving parts, there's, a, there's just nothing to it. You know, you look at a reed valve cage, that whole assembly, it weighs less than your phone. You know, that's the whole valve system in a motorcycle. Um, you know, I, I just think it's fascinating how, how powerful they are and how light they are and how competitive they are, like, around the world. You know, it's, it's, it's awesome, you know. But I think with the TPI stuff, I, I, that has a lot to do with the, with the emissions, of course. We don't want to, uh, you know hurt the, the air and hurt the earth at all. I, I think, you know, I think I was listening to the podcast you did with Amelia mm -hmm. and she was talking about that kind of juxtaposition between being a, a, an off-road motorcycle rider and being someone who's really into nature and preservation. And like, that's the same thing with me, like coming from a mountain bike, um, you know, it's like, you, you don't understand, like 
all the free time I have, I spend in the forest. I obviously love the forest and I want to take care of it. You know, it's like people think that like, oh man, if you ride a two-stroke dirt bike, you're just like, you know, running over turtles and frogs and just being a jerk and cutting trees down, setting shit on fire. And, you know, that's not the case at all. You know, like I would, I would easily pay, you know, a membership to, to every forest that I ever touched with my dirt bike. And I'm happy to pay those fees to, to do these events and, and everything like that to help uh, preserve the trails and, you know, and all that kind of stuff, man. It's like, I, I wish there was a way, you know, it's, it, it's the same thing with on road too. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you know, one gnarly, uh, Harley guy with super loud pipes that punches some dude's mirror off. Now, like every guy who's a, on a cruiser is a jerk and same thing, sport bike. If you see a sport bike going 150 miles an hour down the highway, like, Oh, they just want to die. They're going to put their bike through the side of some car. It's like, this is one dude out of like a thousand other dudes, you know, or whatever. So it's the same thing with the dirt bike thing, you know, I, and I see some folks that maybe have some stuff to learn, you know, mainly I see a lot of like trucks and stuff doing some, some big time damage, you know, which, which is a drag. Um, you know, I think a, a motorcycle has such a small footprint, a light footprint that, that there's very little impact. Um, but yeah, man, I, there's a lot to all that, of course, but yeah, the two stroke deal is where it's at for me, man. People are probably tired of listening to me talk about it. My buddy told me the other day, like, thank God you bought one. Will you shut up about it already? <laughs> <laughs> I know. We, well, we talk about it on the on the podcast all the time. They're like, oh, here we go. You know, they're just awesome, dude. I hadn't had anything that made me feel so good at anything because it's just so capable. Uh, and the damn electric star is so nice because you can get yourself in a pickle and you don't have to find the kicker and all that. That's the one thing the old Yamaha doesn't have. There's, they're all, all my old bikes are kickstart only. Uh, having a similar taste to you, I was that close to buying an XR400 and making that my new hair scramble machine. But the kickstart oh, yeah. only and yeah. watching watching guys getting stuck on the side of the hill kicking and I hit the starter on the 250L and went by him, I went, Dude, nah, yeah. we're not doing that. <laughs> Dude, the magic button is so good. It's so awesome how small the starters and the batteries are. Yeah. You know, it's just like, why not? Why not have that stuff? It's awesome. Yeah. Um, I did have a, I, I rode a, uh, Honda CRF 450R for a period of time in the woods, which is just a straight up motocross race bike. You know, like it's such an aggressive bike as a really light flywheel. Uh, but I got it super cheap off of a guy, which is funny. Cause like I was going to go buy the bike off of this dude. I think he wanted like 1600 bucks or something for it. So I drove all the way up to Long Island to take a look at it. And, uh, you know, I ripped it around and it ran strong and everything felt pretty good. You know, I just needed some cosmetic stuff on it. I think it was a 2004, 450 So I loaded up in the truck and I look at the frame in the front and the frame is completely cracked across the front where the wishbone is, where it comes down single to double. And, uh, I'm like, dude, the damn frames cracked on this thing. And he was like, oh, man, I had no idea. I never even noticed that. And I was like, all right, well, I'm already here. So I'll still buy it off you for half price because I know I could weld aluminum in two seconds. Yeah. It's like not a really a thing that I was even thinking it was a big deal. <laughs> so he's like, all right, man, all right. You know, so I gave him half price for it. And I took it home. I welded it in about six minutes. <laughs> I continue to thrash the thing in the woods, you know? Um, but the problem with that bike is that it was very easy to stall because 
it uh, it was just meant to be on yep. throttle all the time. So trying to pick your way through the woods on a bike like that, super high compression, super light flywheel, wanted to stall all the time, overheated all the time, and then it wouldn't want a hot start. So you'd end up kicking the thing 6,000 times, and uh, man, it just, it really kicked my ass. And that was before I built the Triumph. And then when I built the Triumph, I was like, this is a much better dirt bike than that actual dirt bike that I used to have. So I ended up only riding the CRF for a few months, and then I rode the Triumph for years off-road. That's funny. Obviously, yeah. I'm, since Honda got me into racing, I was like, I wanted to buy another Honda, but they don't really have a 250 cross country bike right yeah. now. And if they did, I, like you said, it's 10 grand, and I'm going to be like, yeah. Man. So hopefully yeah. that'll come around again. And, you know, I have one bike for one thing, one for another, but this so is a dream garage, right? At the, uh, at the vintage races in the post vintage class, you get to see some unique models that really didn't kind of get popular. So at the last race, there was a couple RMXs, which was, you know, the woods version of the two stroke RM of the nineties. So there was a couple of them, a ton of KDXs. Um, you know, I think that was really the heyday of those two stroke with lights plated bikes, you know, like the, those, and, and they were detuned a little bit. So they were really good in the woods. They didn't overheat. They were geared really good. So it's cool to see those bikes still kicking ass, you know, like it, it's neat. Those bikes definitely um, laid the groundwork down for the ones that we have now. I had an RMX, I think it was an RMX 250. I think I had a search on the marketplace when I was shopping. Uh, yeah. It seemed like those got snatched up quick. The yeah. ones that were out there. Yeah, they're so pretty rare. Funny how that stuff works. So, yeah. Well, sir, we've, uh, we've got two hours in at least. So if, uh, <laughs> People want to find more Joe Zito. Where do they need to go? Um, well, of course, you know, check me out at Revzilla. You can uh, go onto Revzilla's YouTube channel. You can see my product videos and some of the uh, other different uh, types of videos that we've done there. Uh, there's a few how-tos up there. Now, Aerie's going to be taking over the mechanical how-to segment, but I, I managed to crank out some how-to videos over lockdown in my personal garage, which I had a good time doing. And also check out on Common Tread. Uh, there's, you know, I'm definitely not one of the stronger writers in there, uh, but there's some really great motorcycle content on common tread, but you'll see some entries from me once in a while there. And then if you want to hit me up on Instagram, um, it's just Z toe. So it's Z and then three E's and then T O W. So my cousin actually stole our real name. So you know, I guess <laughs> you have it, but yeah, so Z toe spelled very weird, but I'm always happy to talk bikes with anybody via any format because uh, that's my life. <laughs> that's funny how that works. That's, that's the best way to do it though. So, all right, yeah. then. We'll, uh, we'll catch the guest down the road then. Right on, man.